podcastjuice.net. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Prince Podcast. My name is Michael Dean, and boy, it feels good to be home. Joining me today, some cats who haven't touched the mic in here in a minute. A lot of requests for these people. So, first up, of course, Mr. Big Ken. Sir, how are you? Doing good, man. Glad to be back. Talking about this Prince album, man. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Also... Mr. Big Sexy and Sack, sir, how are you? You know, I am <clears throat> I am well, and to borrow from an Aerosmith title, it is time to let the music do the talking, gentlemen. Okay, all right. And also, my man, Mr. Day Dropping, sir, how you doing? I'm doing well, gentlemen. Let's, uh, let's get back into the normal swing of things. Yes, sir, yes, sir. And we have got special guest. I, I don't even know if I can say that anymore. He's, he's been on the Prince podcast <laughs> numerous times. Uh, you will know him from the music snobs. Uh, so please, let's welcome Mr. Arthur. Sir, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm always honored, always happy to be a part of the Prince podcast. Man, thank you for joining us. And once again, uh, a shout out to the music snobs. Where can people find your show? Which is, I'm sure they already know it, but where can they find it? Well, we can be found uh, at the music snobs dot com uh our twitter handle is also at total music snobs um and we are always available in itunes uh the itunes podcast uh directory um as well as google play so we we're we're out there and um we're still doing shows we are in the final throes of prepping our own um prince uh goodbye episode all right so we're definitely gonna keep our ears and eyes open for that all right, before I get into things, uh, we do have a sponsor this show. So I got to read my sponsor. Yeah, you know, well, <laughs> well, it will all reveal itself here in a second. But uh, so today's show is sponsored by Confessions of a Temp Call Girl. Is a I new, saw that. Uh, yeah, it's a new mystery thriller book series written by Tori McGlory, a.k.a. my girlfriend. Uh, book one is available and on sale right now at Amazon.com. And coming soon, uh, book two, which actually is coming, I think, August 31st. So here is the, in the words of the Netflix, here's the get down. You can go get the first book for free. So by the time you hear this podcast, go on to Amazon. If you have Kindle, you can download the book for free. Read that. Get all into it because book two is going to drop here in a couple of days and you're going to want to be up on board for the events that happened in book two. So again, the book is called confessions of a temp call girl. The book is hilarious, but it is a mystery type of thriller book. So it's a definitely a page turner. So definitely go check that out. We would love the support. So there you go. All right, man, let's get into some print stuff. And, and uh, also let me shout out uh, our new listeners who been started listening to the Prince podcast uh, since things have happened with Prince and stuff. We welcome you. Uh, the show will continue on. So we definitely and I'm definitely reading the messages and I'm going to get back to people. But I just want to shout you out. The, the persons that sent stuff. Yes, I see you and we, we love you. So keep it coming. But with that said, what we're going to do today is talk about Prince's second album, which is titled Prince. So we're going to get into that as we normally get into albums and really dive deep into things. Before we get into that, we got to speak about the state of Prince as things are right now. 
2016, and the recording date of this is 827. So I'm going to date that because what we're talking about is brand new. So the big thing that's going to happen is that they're going to open up Paisley Park. Paisley Park Studios will be open to the public. Uh, I, I want to say it's what, October the 6th or something, or the 2nd is the day that they're opening it up to the public. Tickets are currently on sale right now. Like you can literally go on, I think it's official paisleypark.com or something like that, mm-hmm. and buy tickets to do tours in Paisley Park. People have been asking me what I thought about this, and I want to get the fellas' thoughts on this, but I, I will say this quickly. I'm happy on one hand that Paisley Park will be open to the public and you can do tours. Um, I think, Ernie, you got your, your phone, if you can mute that or something. So I'm happy about that. It's a little disheartening that, you know, Prince literally died like four months ago at Paisley Park. And now we opening it up to the public. Uh, let me see. On a, if that was my family member or some type of level, I don't know if that would sit well with me personally. Like, that seems a little crazy, like. My man died here. This is the house, and we opening it up. But on a business level, on I understand how things have to go. I understand why they have to do that right now. You know, my understanding is that the tax bill and different things is getting up there, and maybe there's not enough money coming in. So what do we do to generate some income, try to keep, you know, keep, you know, we can't sell Paisley Park. We don't want to do that. So what do we do? So I get why they have to do this. It's just disheartening a little bit. Uh, and I'm saying that from a person who I had the opportunity to go there before. I get, If I hadn't went there before, I'd probably be like, I, I'm going to be up in there. So I respect everyone who's got to go. Trust me. I, I got to go too. But it's just, I have to say that it is a little, it's sad that it has to be that way. But I understand why, you know. Um, like, I mean, they, they, they didn't open up Neverland. You know, I don't think it's it ain't never been open to the public, right? Even to this day, I think they sold, they they sell it or so, but they didn't have to do that. You know, Graceland didn't open up four months later, so I, it's a little sad that for me, you know, Prince, that's my icon, that's my hero, dude that I hold in a whole other realm. It's sad that his business has to be operated like that, but again, I get why. Uh, Big Ken. You recently went to Minneapolis. That is correct. Uh, what, what do you think about this situation? Yeah, I, I go out there every couple of years or so because my brother lives out there with his family, so we go visit. Uh, this last visit uh, there, you know, we went to go and check out all the memorial there at Paisley Park. And, uh, you know, I, I agree with you uh, pretty much verbatim, Mike. Uh, on the one hand, as a fan, you know, as someone who knows, you know, how much uh, great music has come out of that place and the history of that place, you know, I would pay any amount of money to go see it and to to tour it and to be part of it. Um, But you're right, you know, to me, part of me also feels it's kind of soon. Uh, We know the business reasons why this has to be done. And even though I I believe uh, it's been rumored that, you know, Prince, you know, had plans or, or, or had, you know, at least banded the idea about of turning this, turning this into a museum at some point 
and he had already started collecting stuff, you know, would he have wanted it to go down this way? I'm not really sure. Um, I probably will go check it out at some point, but it probably probably won't be anytime soon. Like, I don't think I would be part of the initial mad rush of folks uh, that's going to try to get there in October, especially with this other concert thing that's happening. It's just going to be a madhouse, no pun intended. So, you know, I, I'm kind of with you on that. I, I'm, I'm glad to see that it's opening, but I, I wish it would have been under different circumstances. And I can't also help but wonder, too, man, that, you know, had Prince had a will and had, you know, his plans really, you know, laid out, as to what he really wanted to do, would would we ever see this, or would we not? You know, so it's 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 just a lot of stuff to think about. But I get the reasons, but you know, I'm kind of mixed about it overall. Yeah, you know, you said something about the, with the wheel and and things, and my thinking of it is, you know, Prince was the how do I say? I don't want to say the cash cow, but he was the guy. He was the breadwinner in this situation. Like he 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 is the product he is the the thing that goes out he's the daddy of the situation you know that so the household removing that person out of it you know i guess there wasn't things in place that we could generate that money to keep the things going the way they were right like you can just go tour and get millions of dollars and then come right. back and so you take that out of it it's like okay what happens and then of course you take out the situation where there's no wheel you know and so i Man, it's, uh, and this is why I learn. I'm learning my lessons from this. You know, I watch how people get down and how they make moves. And I'm like, man, you know what? We got to really make sure our house. Prince said this in song. Y'all have our house in order because you don't know what could happen. Like, are my people going to be straight if I'm gone? You know, uh, is, is my thing going to be proper if I have to step out of the situation? So I'm learning that, man, I got to make sure. I have things set in place because I don't want my kids to have to deal with uh, do we got to sell all the daddy stuff or, you know what I mean? Or the house, how we keep the house, you know? So it's just, it's, it's a, it's a definitely a lesson learned. I guess it don't matter how much money you got or what position in life you is. It's just like basic stuff. I guess we kind of have to, you know, attend to sometimes, but uh, neither here nor there uh, in the words of Tyreek Nasheed, I digress. Uh, Big, uh, big Ken. I'm sorry, Big Sexy and Sack. Too many bigs on the show. Big, <laughs> big Sexy and Sack, man. What, what do you think about this? Well, you know, I have a little bit of a different view simply because I have not had an opportunity to be there yet. Mm-hmm. But I definitely respect where you and Ken are coming from. And at the same time, it's like you said, you know, this is where, unfortunately, our, our friend passed. And I just don't want it to be a situation where there are people who aren't of the mindset that the five of us are, but there are people who go in there, where's the elevator? Let's take pictures in the elevator. Wow. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to be around that. I don't want that to happen. Now, I don't know how close the elevator was to where a lot of other things are going to be shown from a historical sense, but if they can, like, segregate that area, I'd be a thousand percent behind that because I don't want people to make it salacious. You know, I don't know what goes on there. At Graceland, uh, I hope that people don't have the, you know, stupidity to go to Graceland and, and be actually where Elvis was when he passed, just to take stupid pictures. That's that's why I don't really like that 
portion of it, but at the same time, there are a lot of people who are of you know our mindset who haven't been there yet. Now mm-hmm. I'm I'm with Ken. I'm not going to go in October because it's going to be a madhouse, you know, no pun intended. But at some point, I will go out there just to see for myself. But I don't. I just don't want it to become something it doesn't need to be. Now, as far as bringing in income, yeah, unfortunately, it needs to because. The property taxes on that property are alone are probably in the millions because it's such a large facility. So many things are going on. The power to run it, Graceland, conversely, is just a house. You know, that's really all it is. This is a working studio, and if they need to monetize it somehow in order to keep it in their family and make it you know productive, this is you know one of the ways they can do that. Yeah, that, that's right. Graceland is a house. This is a, a huge, huge, huge facility. Uh, I almost kind of want to say, like, I want to go there, but I want to go on an off day. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. the crowds are sort of dissipated, and it's like, oh, yeah, you can come, out, come on a Tuesday at, you know, mm-hmm. 3 o'clock or something. And it's maybe just maybe you and five other people. And just going in and just sit in the fucking studio, man, just sit down. It's like... Yeah, I'm gonna take yeah I mean, time. real talk, you might want to wait for like anywhere from like eight months to a year. I mean, you straight up have people falling out up in there in tears. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Day one in October, week one in October, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, have you ever been, uh, author, have you been to Paisley Park? I've never been to Paisley Park. Um, I've been to Minneapolis once, stepped inside of First Avenue, really stepped inside of 7th Street entry, bought a couple t shirts and bounced, but mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to uh, secure some tickets to go see the revolution. Saturday the third, so the final night. Wow! Um, and so that'll be my first time really experiencing, um, and and in ways, um, and I'm sure because of you know because of my age and growing up in the '80s, but in ways, First Avenue has more of a weight of Prince's presence um, than Paisley Park does uh, to me. Um, I mean, beyond you know the obvious that Paisley Park was not just a studio and work facility, but his but his home, you know, and I, I agree with Ken that um, that uh, the absence of a will or any kind of directive, which is, I mean, honestly, is just absolutely baffling to me. I mean, the music snobs alone, we've been on the business end of his attorney. So it's not like he didn't know any lawyers. And so it's really odd that he didn't have any kind of directives, you know, in place to be able to say, you know, uh, just any kind of instructions whatsoever. But, um, I, you know, I, I, I also agree that... Um, it, I don't think it's too soon. I, I do agree that the timing is actually very good for this. Um, I mean, for a couple of reasons. One being to be able to have a way to maintain the facility itself and also provide a revenue stream to, um, you know, his family. Um, my loose understanding is that, you know, he was he, – he provided some uh, allowances for members of his family, you know. Um, and I also think it's a tasteful – way to be able to quickly monetize um, this situation um, without uh, running amok in the vault, for example, or, uh, you know, putting some ad hoc Cirque du Soleil, you know, Prince concert, you know what I'm saying? Um, Wasn't there some sort of talk of that early on? Yeah, there was talk of that. And it probably will still happen. But, you know, it's like, what's what's the urgency? The urgency right now is... You know, there are no instructions. 
Um, we still got people that are saying that he's his son. So there's no there's no clear air. Right? So what do we need to do right now to be able to, you know, generate some revenue to take care of these of these of these properties? Remember, they were selling off some property. They're putting some property on the auction right. block. Um, so you kind of have to do this in in a tasteful way, but also in a sane way. Um, you know, I feel. Um, you know, a great idea, and I, I, and forgive me for I'm just traversing no, just with, with everything that's all in my head. You know, a great idea which would absolutely never ever happen <laughs> would be to somehow um, almost make uh, you know bespoke editions of different albums based off of tracks that are actually in the vault. You know that that you'd have sort of almost like an you know an ability to you know sign up with some kind of you know subscription or some kind of fee and and literally like like a Nike ID where you can make your own Nike. You know you can make your own Dream Factor. You can make your own Camille. You can make your own you know version of Emancipation, for example, or something like that. There, there are probably a lot of creative ways. Um, and the facilities to be able to license that 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 type of material, like through Creative Commons or something like that. There, there are probably like a myriad of ways to be able to not only generate revenue, but also keep that fan connection, you know, with Prince. Which is another reason why I think that oh, that uh, turning Paisley into a museum. And I believe maybe that the museum that we see in October, the way the tour is structured, would be very different than the, than, the, than the tour structured, you know, five years from now, assuming that they keep that going. You know, there may be other areas that are opened up. There may be, you know, certain artifacts that are moved around or sort of rotated, you know, because, I mean, gosh, a 40-year career, he's got all kinds of stuff, you know, that people just won't – they'll see what they see in October, but they got more stuff that yeah, they're not going to trot out. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's almost – I wonder – I, I very much want to know what this museum is going to be about. You know what I mean? Like, who is it going to be made for? What, right. what is it? What is the key exhibit? You know what I mean? Is there so much about Prince that I, obviously that we know? But yeah. then there's the, you know, I won't say the average fans. I think it's beyond an average fan to travel all the way to Minneapolis to go see this. But there is certain levels to this right so i'm just very curious like how are they in this amount of time going to create something that is comprehensive enough that would address you know i mean i I, i'm just very puzzled i almost kind of want to reach out to Londell and i'm like yo like it's not going to be i don't mean to insinuate that it's not going to be structured or not be professional you know but it's going to be it's going to be kind of ad hoc I mean, part of the draw to even be able to be inside of Paisley Park is the fact that Prince lived there. It's right. Prince's world, right? So that you're even able to see the atrium and, and you know, maybe the room that the, and that's the door to the vault is going to be draw enough. But it's not going to be on the order of something like uh, the David Bowie traveling exhibit. David Bowie is. That was, a, that was the best exhibit of anything that I've ever seen in terms of the way they structured this man's career mm. in a museum space. Now, now. Prince is at that level in terms of backstory and material and catalog to produce something on the level of David Bowie is. But it's not going to happen in, what are we talking about, six weeks? Yeah, that, that's the It thing. could happen in six right. years or it could happen in five years. You know? So I, I think, I think that, that if they keep these tours going, which I hope that they do, that it's going to evolve into something a little more elaborate you know, by year three, year four, or year five. Yeah, I, I, I could, I can truly hope because, uh, you know, here locally, uh, we have obviously you know, Jimi Hendrix, you know, huge for Seattle. Yeah, and they, there's a whole 
huge, I don't know, you know there's a museum thing for him here uh, called EMP, mm-hmm. which, you know, now again, it's funded by, you know, billionaire guy who can just throw away his money. So, and it looks that way, right? But he went all out and I'm like, man, okay, I get it. And even, uh, and I think I spoke of this before on the show, but there was a, um, a parliament funkadelic, they had a parliament funkadelic exhibit there at one point. Where it was literally a virtual reality ride through the funk. Mm. Like, like you got on this thing and then the screen came on and you rolled this thing and felt like you were flying through the funk. And, you know, it had Maceo and Bootsy and, and they filmed all this new stuff for it. Mm. And I was like, this is crazy. And it was, uh, actually, when Prince was on the Rainbow Children, when they came to Seattle, you know, Maceo was with them. Uh-huh. I've said this, I think I said this in the show. But... He he was asking us what was this EMP thing about because I guess they wanted Prince to come there after the show, mm-hmm. and we were all like, "Well, you should ask Maceo because he's in the exhibit. <laughs> he can tell you exactly <laughs> what it's about." You know, and he pulled Maceo up there. And he's like, "Man, what's this all?" And Maceo was kind of like, "Ah, you know, I don't know, man." And then Prince just looked at everybody and said, well, "Where's the money going?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said, "They want me to play a play a show after I play for y'all there, but I just want to know." Who gets the money? Right, who gets the money? And he right, said, until right. till you guys can answer me that question, I'm not playing over there. And, of mm-hmm. course, you know, we couldn't answer that question for him. And he didn't play there, but he did. They did do an after party there, and they invited the fans and stuff. But mm-hmm. but it was an example of, yeah, what an exhibit or show could be like. So I'm very curious. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I agree kind of what, what um, Arthur was saying, too. I'm trying to remember where I read this. I'm not sure if it was Dr. Funkenberry or, or some, some some other article like that. But they were saying that they are looking at plans like the, the museum is going to open in, on, in October, like we're saying. And they're just going to be showing the stuff that's been collected there so far. You know, the Purple right. Rain, uh, right. motorcycle, guitars, that kind of stuff. Right. But they're looking at possibly building, you know, parking structures, more lodging. You know, trying to get some more interactive type of uh, exhibits, quote unquote, in this museum. But you're right; that probably won't take effect for another two, three years, I would guess. So, yeah, they got the space. Yeah, they got yeah. the space. You know, plus plus it's still a working studio, so they're going to be, you know, probably saying if they if artists want to come there and mm-hmm. record there still, you know, sound stages, they got all that stuff. So yeah, this is a work in progress. So I don't see a real need to rush into this. I just want them to do it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ultimately, because I want them to honor honor the man and his vision and what he's accomplished. So I don't want anything desecrated, you know, just to make a buck. So if it, if it means waiting a couple of years, I'll do that. Right. I think they'll I mean, have to wait a couple of years because, from a trust operation standpoint, a trustee has many duties. One mm-hmm. of them is to make the trust profitable. Mm-hmm. So if they're going to outlay money for parking structure or other improvements, they better be damn sure they're going to get that back because you, you have a duty to the remaining beneficiaries to mm-hmm. not waste, you know, trust property. So, like Ken said, this could take a couple of years. I'm not saying it can't be done, but they have to do this, you know, in a certain procedure. Right. Well, I think what's cool, too, and I, and I know what Ken was alluding to, uh, somehow those plans for Paisley Park are posted online. I don't know if that was part of public record or something, but uh, it looks as if they're working with the city of Chanahassee is is involved in this too well i can only hope that you know again the short period i was there i could tell the hotels and businesses that are just down the street from me they're eating very well i mean that was a you know i'm sure they wanted those annual parties or different things happening Mm because they was 
you know, it affected everybody around there. Uh, was you know, everybody got to eat. Yeah, so I mean, it, I think the it's museum in their best was interest to. to for the, even the city to say, listen, let, 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 roll back some of the taxes on that right, or whatever. Right. And let them build this thing up because this is benefiting all of us, you know. Yeah. And you figured, they figured uh, just to build on what you're talking about, you know, the city of Chan Hansen, that's probably the fastest way that they could put something together that the city would be on board with. Right. right. The city council would be on board because they don't have to move nothing. All they got to do is clean up. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And I don't mean to trivialize it, but for real. You know, it wasn't like he didn't, it wasn't like they had to move anything in there, you know. It, it, hadn't, been, it hadn't been a working studio outside of his own projects for a long, long time, you know. So there wasn't any real traffic. It was a skeleton, you know, staff that worked there. And it, it's, this is a very, a very quick thing to be able to put something together that, that looks reasonably professional enough to be able to open doors, you know, and at least try to solve, you know, a revenue problem. Here's an idea. You know, here's an idea. And this just popped in my head after uh, hearing what Arthur said. Um, In order, and and this is just me, you know, spitballing. In order to really monetize it, they could do like what, I don't know if it's still on the air, but back uh, a few years ago, there was a show called Live from Abbey Road. People would go into Abbey Road Studios in, in England you know, play just in the studio, no audience, no nothing, mm-hmm. and it'll be aired on, on, I think, Bravo. I think it was Bravo. And they can do the same thing with that. They could package it like live from Daryl's house. You know, artists yeah, would come yeah. in oh, and want to nice. play, you know, live from Paisley Park. It's so-and-so, and they could syndicate that or make it on like a HBO-type limited-run platform. That could make them some money. Indeed, because, again, the biggest asset is the fact that it's a, a full-on multimedia exactly. performance space. So there's nothing they can't really do in there. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, I'm going to shift it, shift here. But there was an article in, uh, well, I don't know if it was in the Billboard magazine, but it was definitely on their website mm-hmm. uh, about uh, Prince's music and publishing. And, you know, what I, I don't know if they're insider information or whatever it is, but they were talking about, you know, sort of what things they could be doing now. And, you know, there was some talk of, I think, Warner Brothers obviously is trying to court them. Uh, I think they said Sony. Uh, and it was, you know, the conversation was about, uh, you know, getting the publishing out of, uh, you know, right now, MPG Publishing was handled in-house. Mm-hmm. But now they're talking about maybe it's time to go ahead and do a deal with a, a bigger house and let them handle the administrative parts of that and taking care of it. You know, again, Warner Brothers or Sony or somebody. Um and then, of course, the music itself, um, you know, there's the talk now, if they do a, a different deal, they can get it on some of the other streaming services and not just be exclusive to title. Um, you know, they were talking about what music from Prince has been selling of late since his death. And, and you know, I think the top <coughs> ones were all of the um, greatest hits compilations were the big sellers. Mm-hmm. And then they were talking about, well, what can the family, if they can do a deal before the holiday season so that they could possibly release something this holiday. And then they were speculating, would they release another greatest hits package since those are the ones that seem to be successful, but would it be too much of a clutter? Cause he already has like three or four greatest hits packages already out there. He's got like uh, four, four, the very so, best, the B sides one that came out in the nineties, ultimate, something. ultimate, ultimate. Right. And then like the very best of prints. Yes. Right. So those are like his top things selling. Uh, at the moment, I would imagine Purple Rain probably falls underneath those or something. 
Um, but so, I wanted to go. So are they it. are they contemplating whether it'd be profitable to do that again? I guess they were saying his profitable stuff is the compilation. Should they put another one out with some sort of vault material at the nah. end of the year, or do you nah. release an a, an album, or you know what I mean? Like, so I'm, I'm curious. What do you think, Ernie? Like, what's yours <laughs> for for money purposes? Yeah, most definitely. As a fan, no, I don't really want to hear that. But uh, just from a marketing standpoint i would think that you strike while the iron is hot and um if a a compilation is what's what's doing well right now and i don't see why it wouldn't uh to just the general public then yeah you want to do that again you could repackage stuff all over again hell star wars is coming out on blu-ray again with with extended features and we're all going to buy it right and so this is um this is how that goes i mean it, it I don't from uh, from a fan standpoint and thinking whether it's a, a, a moral thing to do. I have, my opinion is on that, and I'm not. I don't think it's a good idea. But from uh, a, a marketing standpoint and, and basically a monetary standpoint, oh, it totally makes sense. And I think that the that they should do that. And I think they'll probably do it a few more times before it's said and done. Yeah, it's. It is it, just be interesting to see. I, I when I think about it, I'm like, what would you put out? You know, would, would, if you had to put something out this holiday season, would you put out another? Would it be too much to like try to? Well, you're not going to dig in the vaults, really, unless you grab maybe one song or something. And that's and, probably what they would do. You know. Just one, one, one carrot, and that's it. That's all you need. Uh, let me just throw this in real quick. Uh, again, this is on Billboard, and I'll put the link in the show notes. It says, uh, since his death in April, Prince's catalog has sold 1.93 million albums, as well as 5 million song downloads, with the Warner Brothers catalog accounting for 94% of the sales. Beyond the Warner Brothers catalog, Prince has a vast amount of recorded but unreleased music, plus most of his own NPG catalog, which is currently unavailable except for title for streaming. His last two albums, Hit and Run Phase 1, Hit and Run Phase 2, were released on CD through Tidal Universal, while previous titles, Musicology and Planet Earth, were part of the Columbia deal. Which is interesting is that when you go from, like, Emancipation on forward, probably the only things you could probably maybe buy would be, you know, Musicology and Planet Earth. But the rest of them are probably not even for sale at all, I, don't, I would think, like unless you're streaming them on Tidal or something, which... Or you go into Target and you find a lotus flower. Yeah, oh, that's right. <laughs> you might mm-hmm. find one for like $1.99. Like, it's like, oh, that's crazy. But yeah, like a lot of his stuff isn't even for sale or not even in print anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. It's a, There's so much to do with that. And, you know, as much... And of course, you know, he got, he got his masters back uh, through Warner Brothers and stuff. But... It's just going to be interesting. I could see it all coming right back to Warner Brothers. Like, you know, well, they had it before. And again, I guess they still forever will be eating off of Purple Rain and all those albums because it came out through their thing. But I don't know, man. It's just, I think that's what they got to take their time to, 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 to figure that stuff out. But go ahead, Arthur. Yeah, they can't, Warner can't figure out how to release Purple Rain, which is, completely baffling to me i mean if they've got any inroads the way you do it is you take purple run you make it a double disc set and then you put in a then you put in a third 
DVD of say, you know, the the benefit performance that happened where Purple Rain, Baby I'm a Star, and I Would Die for You was originally recorded or something like that. Because again, right. the man filmed everything. He filmed all of his concerts, you know, and we've got the footage, right? We've got the footage of that show that I just described. We've got the footage of the warehouse rehearsals for his birthday party in 1984 and the bootleg to that, you know, and you've got all these songs that weren't included on, on Purple Rain, you know, what there's G Spot, there's like the, the, the love theme that was actually released. uh, Bruh, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's like the way that you do it, you do these, these deluxe sets like oh my god like everybody else does like madonna does like 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 metallica does like you know what i'm saying and it's like well maybe they can do that now i i think when prince was alive that wasn't on the table like if you believe what he said on twitter he he gave them the you know he he gave them the one of the purple rain whatever special edition that was but right i don't know if it contained those things you said Right. I don't either. But he, he got up on a What was it? It's been three years now. You know, he made this press conference and he said that there's going to be, you know, an anniversary edition of Purple Rain. That was like a big, huge deal. And that his albums were some of his albums were going to be remastered and re-released through Warner Brothers. <clears throat> Nothing ever happened. Now, you know, by default, I always blame Prince. But <laughs> to his credit, you know, there's there's been a lot of shifting of CEOs and head honchos at Warner Brothers who probably made these negotiations very difficult because there was no consistency to as to who was on the table from the Warner Brothers side, you know? So, yeah, I'm dead set looking at Warner Brothers. They still haven't released... Well, I'm sorry, I'm starting to rant. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what you do. That's what you do. You know, but the thing is, that's what but I said. Like, yo, I mean... It, it's on them, but maybe they... I, I, I'm thinking, too, though... <laughs> If you believe what he said, where I did give him that, it may yeah. not have been, though, what they would have felt would have been marketable in a sense of if it doesn't have this, Prince, it's going to be hard for us. We can't just put the same album out with like one extra song or something. Maybe maybe he really had no intention of really giving them like that benefit concert or different things like that you described. He may not uh-huh. be like, nah, hell no, I'm never putting uh-huh. that out. Now it could be different, you know. Now the, you know, his trust or whatever, they may see like, well, now we can, uh, maybe we can put that stuff on there, like what you're saying, you know what I'm saying, and and, and do that special edition that a lot of people would be looking for. Right. I just think it, when Prince was alive, I don't think he necessarily had an interest at all to do anything on that level. And uh, you know what? To your point, I'll take that point. How about this? How about a Purple Rain? That includes a, a Blu-ray version of Prince and the Revolution Live that came out sure. on VHS. There you go. You I mean, I'm with all of that. That's all you need. Yeah, you I'm, I'm with any of that stuff. Of course, any of that would be excellent. It's just a matter of I think now those things could possibly be on the table. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. you have. I'm not saying he's out of the way. Trust me, but I'm just saying the person no, who I was in you. charge. He's not here to make a decision on right, it. Right, right, right. So and now I feel you. they can come and but do the, what they presumably, want. Presumably, hey, Prince, we released this, you know, 30 years ago on DV, you know, Warner Brothers home DVD. You, you didn't have a problem then. You, you know, it's reasonable to say you won't have a problem if we do this now. Well, yeah. well, we'll say know, that Warner Brothers so that it even exists, particularly this new crop of of, sure. of, of people who want to know, really know more about Prince. You know, they flip if they knew that there was a if they could actually get their hands in play. Nobody has VHS anymore. If they can actually, right. no, get, I mean, you preach to the choir. We, we, we trust mm-hmm. me. Well, you know, I think that, lastly, I will say about Blu-ray Warner remastered. Brothers. Say it again. 
Can I just get Sound of the Times Blu-ray oh. HD edition, please? That's all I want. Hey, man. man. Walk your behind into ja- Yeah, go to Japan Tower Records. <laughs> it's yeah. on the shelf, man. That thing is off the chain. You need to get that. I had to buy a German Rolling Stone edition of the right, Prince right. Tribute issue because they included a DVD of the Sign of the Times movie. Yes, yes. Well, we will say wow. this. Warner Brothers yeah. is releasing all of the Prince movies on Blu-ray. Uh, is it this month or September? Something so, like except, that. Except yeah. Sign of the Times, though. It's except, not well, they don't have – that's not their movie, right? They didn't have nothing uh, to do yeah, with that. Yeah, that's not their property. That's always been the big thing. Well, I mean, I'm like, God damn, well, whose property is it? Because I'm, I, I'm looking at it included with this issue of Rolling Stone that I can't read because it's in German. Well, it's a uh, it was a company uh, Complex Odeon, Cineplex Odeon, Cineplex Odeon, which is a I don't know if they're still around in terms of movie chain. Yeah, I don't either. I remember MCA released the uh, VHS on home video. Yeah, so I mean, you know, uh, but again, Warner Brothers is putting out the three movies. Now they're not doing anything special with them except for their new trans, supposedly new transfers to Blu-ray. Of course, there was never a Blu-ray for Cherry Moon or Graffiti Bridge, so. Uh, and it's all one box, and I want to say it's like what less than thirty dollars or something for the whole thing. Yeah, that's uh, the only way you're gonna solve Graffiti Bridge. So yeah, hey, I'm I'm buying. I'm Angie. <laughs> I feel you. I'm not even mad. <laughs> I gotta see it. But I mean, so they they're doing that right um, for what that's okay. worth. Real I, I quick, got a go ahead for you guys because I know that, that you know the review isn't gonna take very long on this. I mean, but um, here we are a few months later, right? Uh, to have mentioned this then would have been in, in bad form. I don't think it's so much now. So I, I bring this out to you folks here. What, what are your thoughts on this, on the idea of um, not necessarily bootleg? Well, I guess you could say bootleg as well. Bootlegs, any new bootlegs, or any uh, o- officially released vault tracks that come out. Are you okay with, with that stuff coming out now? Define coming out. I mean, like, if you have someone like, you know, oversee an actual finishing and mastering of it. I have no problem with that. Okay, all right, yeah. But what do you, what what do the rest of you guys think? Yeah, and and with with it being done correct, and I and I know that's kind of sub- objective and all, but uh, where it gets remastered properly and that uh, that it gets presented well, that you get a purple rain like Arthur was talking about, that where things are properly deluxed, like they like we as fans envision these deluxe things to be. Um, if they get released now, do you think it uh, in bad taste or to to no. desire something like let that? Me, let me let me no, put it to you like let me put it to you like this way, Ernie. Uh, I'm as you guys know, I'm a huge Miles Davis fan. They get me every couple of years. Columbia does, Sony does when they come out with these box sets, and I already have all the albums, but they come out with these box sets, top of the line, liner notes, extra material, all kind of unreleased tracks. They charge what they want, they get that money. Mm. They do the same thing. There's one coming out next month, as a matter of fact, that I'm going to get just because. So if they did the same thing with the Prince material and they put if they put it out right, right, remastered, packaged nice with extras, like, like a lot of the stuff that Arthur's talking about, they can charge what they want. Take mm-hmm. my money. I'm first in line. Oh, so am I. Well, I mean, he's, I think so he's I. talking about bootlegs, though, right? In the sense. Yeah, that, you can I, include that, too. I'm talking about unreleased, well, boot, what we call bootlegs, right? Unreleased material. Like, if somebody came out and they, re, you know, had databank straight up remastered, you know, you know, nicely packaged, you know, with other stuff from that area, wonderful ass, you know, stuff like that, nicely packaged, oh, I'll buy it. Mm. I'll buy it. But they need to do it, you know, it has to be done right. I don't, I'm not talking about just somebody taking an existing bootleg that already sounded crappy and trying to release that. 
Exactly. Yeah, that's what, not not that. But if they do it, because that's essentially what the major labels do when they find all these unreleased tracks. These these Miles Davis tracks I'm talking about. This is from '64 to '68. This stuff has never been heard before. So they're gonna they clean it up and they put it out, package it up nice. What's the difference between that and a and a bootleg that they find and somebody right. decides to clean it up? And just so I'm clear, would would I ask your question again? Because I'm not understanding what you're saying. Okay, now taking both bootlegs that are bootlegs, you know, not 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 polished up things, but bootlegs, as well as polished, unreleased stuff. Are we okay? Are you okay with things like that getting released now? Because if something like that was to be announced soon, okay. right soon after his death, it would have been in bad taste, and I think folks would have been like, "The fuck that type of attitude about it." But now, a few months later, you get. The, op- the opening, the inevitable opening of uh, Paisley Park and um, shows that are now really being put together on, uh, and in tribute. Um, what are your thoughts on, on music, the music? Because in the end, it's the music. What are your thoughts on the music being either polished up and, and brought out in, in good form uh, as we as fans like for it to be? And what do you think of any uh, uh, bootlegs? coming out now as far as well, getting uh, getting a hold of them well I, i'll say this uh my thirst <laughs> for prince's music uh is as strong as ever but uh they i would prefer they pump their brakes out of respect for the prince culture uh if they are planning to do any of those of course i like uh like Ken said, or anybody, yeah, my money, first day dollars, I'm buying it. It's not even a question. But I would prefer those come out at least next year or something. There's, I don't really see a reason to rush release anything. No, like there's that. no hurry. You're absolutely right. Yeah, even no if hurry. it was like yeah. we, we, we actually found the reel of the finished, ready to go. Uh, what's that fucking album they talk about? Rainbow, Ch- uh, Rainbow Garden. What? what I'm, uh, Roadhouse Garden. Roadhouse Garden. Garden. We, we we found the Roadhouse Garden uh, masters already done. We can press the shit up. I, I would be like, I'm on, I'm on it. But there, if they was to say it was coming out, you know, October sixth in conjunction, I would be like, that's kind of whack. That's just my opinion. I would buy it, but I think it's whack. There's no reason to rush that. Uh, we got. We we have time, we, you know what I mean? Like he just put first feel up to me personally. He just put out just put out an album, man. Hit and run phase two, whatever you may feel about it. I would rather them promote that shit. That's what he was on. This, that that, that record is not dead. Uh, it ain't even hardly been heard. So until you start to go reaching back and grabbing some of that other stuff, build it up, man. Like. My whole thing is, yeah, yeah. Am I not gonna like somebody's gonna share me a bootleg or something? Of course, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take it and I'm gonna listen to it, jam it, and share it. But uh, I don't think no money should be made. Everything money's supposed to go to the family, and I would just think that the family they shouldn't even be in no rush to release that unreleased stuff either. Like let, let it figure it out first, because I don't really, I question if they really even know what they got. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I don't know yeah, how exactly. they would put something out. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So I would say ease off a little bit, figure it out first, 
you know, figure out the mess of everything that's going on right now. Because as you know, we got the revolution here. You got Shili Yi here. You got this person, that person. And all of these people are on this music in some way or another. So I would rather they figure out, okay, this is the project. Here, here's my dream. You figure out the project, go get Alan Leeds and some of these cats that can really write up the notes and gather the stories together and put that. Because to me, at this point, the music is just as important as the story behind how that shit happened. Because now it's all history, right? Mm -hmm. Prince ain't here. So I want to have, when you say the package, I need to have the the little mini book or the extensive notes as they did for James and everybody else to go with it. So so that now they can put that shit in historical context and appreciate it for what it is. Anybody else can, can go ahead. No, I agree completely because Ken used the magic phrase, you know, liner notes. And mm. for something like this, with, with a person who has such a tremendous catalog of stuff that, you know, probably the five of us haven't even heard yet, you know, which is very possible. You know, you need someone like Alan Leeds to really shed that light on it. And I'm sure a lot of people who have been involved in the production of his work from the creative and technical end will definitely want to be involved. <clears throat> you know, if they take their time and and don't, you know, just rush into this, this can be something like, like the Hendrix estate because Hendrix only had, what, three albums officially? And there must be a billion greatest hits packages, and they all sell. You know, so if there's no hurry to, to just get it out now, they can just do this properly. And furthermore, since he retained or re- regained his master's, as far as publishing, the estate is now in control. They can partner with anyone they want to and license it out and still keep that ownership. You know, they don't have to sell to anyone. You know, they can really just take their time, sit back and say, see what Sony wants to do, see what Warner's wants to do, you know, and just really do what's best for them and what's best for them long term. So there's really no hurry to do this. Yeah, you know the one thing I would want, I wouldn't mind them being mad them putting out and figuring out was his biography book that he was working on. Uh, well, how, how far he got with it too, though. That's the thing. They said he did like fifty pages or something. Now, whatever that means in Prince's world, whatever. But that's the one thing that I could see. That again, it's not music, but it'd be. I said my man was writing a biography. Like now, I'm really curious to see if it's not even finished. What was his direction? What did he put down? And and if they put that out on some sort of special type of thing, I think that would be something that could be respectful. You could probably have that ready for Christmas. It's a literary type of thing. And it'd be something different. That I, and, and then you kind of just let you kind of wonder a little bit and kind of got a glimpse right. of his mind. You can always do it like a biography slash introspective where you have the people closest around him, Alan Leeds, people like that writing about it. And in between those writings have princess parts in there. You know what I mean? To totally flesh out a a book like that. I think that would be awesome. Something like that would be a tribute and it would be an insight to the guy. Uh, No more insight than Prince himself and the people closest around him. That's an awesome book. Yeah, that's something I could see would be interested to get. Uh, Because I I would just say this. At this point, and we're going to get into what we, we came here for today. (laughs) <laughs> My man got 30-something albums. You can go get them, motherfuckers, because I guarantee you don't have them. Right. You ain't got all <laughs> You already got enough albums that you can go buy before you need to be worried about the oh, yeah. stuff. Right? Like, that's... Uh, and again, a lot of these albums ain't even for sale. So mm-hmm. put those out. Go, re-release Gold Experience. Re-release... Da, da, da. 
you know, let yeah. them do that first. Then I'm not mad at that. Like, it, it, you know, again, it's just like they did with Michael when he passed. Uh, they, they, the was it Sony or whatever, Columbia. They put them. They made sure all them albums was ready to go. And them bad boys were selling off the wall. Yes, uh, Thriller. Yes, they, they, you know, let them. They could, Purple Rain, Parade, Sign of Time. Love yeah, put them back oh, on yeah. the shelf or however they do well, it now. But milk, anyway. milk it because you can. Uh, yeah, you know, and, and, and like you and say, can. remaster that. That's easy. You don't got to dig in the crates for that. Just remaster it. Put it out properly. Mm-hmm. All right. reason why we got here today <laughs> <laughs> is to talk about an album, actually. Uh, so let's get into the conversation about Prince's second album, Prince. Now... Let me preface this to say this is not going to be necessarily a review per se, but a conversation and a celebration of the album and our thoughts on it. Now, going, of course, all of us on this thing, we've probably heard this album literally hundreds of times. I, I think I'm confident to say that. But one thing I realized listening to this album, just in preparation for the show again, I was like, you know, this is probably one of his most covered albums and when i say that there's probably more covers of songs off of this album than any other which i never really picked up on before um you know the obvious is uh shaka khan i would die for you uh and, what i mean i die for <laughs> Michael Dean. The, the, oh my god oh, the, the cardinal sin uh, excuse Lord. me i feel for you Arthur, take over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I feel for you. But, you know, as I was looking through that, uh, I found that uh, Reby Jackson covered that song. Uh, actually, I think the same year as Shaka Khan. Uh, and the Pointer Sisters covered that song like, a couple mm-hmm. years before Shaka. And I was like, damn. And this was all before Prince even blew up with Purple Rain. Right? So. One of the things I was feeling, I was like, this album, at least these songs, let's say, sort of must have resonated with, you know, the artist community and circling around that because they're picking from this thing for their albums years later, before he even becomes this megastar. Um, and, and, and we'll reveal more as we go uh, and talk about the album. But let me set it up to say that this album was released all the way back. Now, you youngins, put this in your mind. This album came out in 1979. That's, that's a whole different world than <laughs> what's going on today. It wasn't no mm-hmm. cell phones. Nope. With no internet. Just nope. think about that. There was no internet. <laughs> most, most of us cannot even function without a cell phone or internet. So imagine there was neither. <laughs> there was no PCs back then. Right? It was, yeah, there was, you know, personal computers. I mean... I don't even know if Commodore 64, none of that stuff existed, I don't think. But, uh, yeah, so it's a different time. It was October 19, 1979. This album dropped. Uh, I couldn't find the Billboard position on the, I assume there was a R&B black music album chart. Maybe there wasn't back then, actually. I don't know. But in terms of Billboard 200, it got all the way to number 22 in America. Album went on to sell three million copies at that time. Nice. So let's start with the first song. 
And we're not going to necessarily go song for song, but what I want to do is ask you guys sort of what your favorites were and what you thought about certain things. But you can't have a conversation about the second Prince album without talking about I Want to Be Your Love, uh, which is arguably the most popular song off of this album and a song that I would imagine most people who've heard of Prince have heard in some form or fashion. It was a very popular song. Even to this day, you still hear it. Uh, so this is the, the third, first song on the album. It was also the first single off the album. This song went number one on the R&B singles chart. And again, this song has been covered, at least two to my knowledge, uh, one by the great Millie Jackson. Uh, she did a cover of this song. Right. And, and then, uh, she's hilarious too. <laughs> <laughs> and then also, uh, not too long ago, uh, if I'm saying her name right, uh, Corny Bailey Ray. Corinne. Corinne. Uh, Hey. This is the Prince Snobs podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But I and and I only vaguely know of her because I remember seeing her name a lot. I don't know if she's still she's dope. I saw her a couple weeks ago in Chicago. Oh really? Corinne Bailey Ray is the truth. All right. Well she had a cover of uh I Wanna Be a Lover uh on her love EP. Um so with that said, I've talked enough. Let's go around the table here. Uh, man, Big Ken, man, what what are your thoughts on I Want to Be a... I don't want to be a lover, but what what are your thoughts on this? <laughs> you, you need a drink, Mike. Pause. I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, okay, uh, let me put it like this, man. You know, I believe... Um, okay, so look, he, he did pretty well with For You. For You was a great debut. I think we would all agree. Um, but I think, you know, he had it in his mind that he wanted to come out strong, with this second album, he wanted to establish himself more. And I just feel like I Want to Be Your Lover, man, is a very, like, it, it's the quintessential pop song. Like, it's a strong, strong opening salvo. It's a strong lead off of this album. You know, when I hear this song and I listen to this whole album, man, the song basically to me just says, like, I've arrived. Like, y'all motherfuckers going to take pay attention to me now. I mean, it's more polished. This one song is more polished, I would argue, more polished than anything that's on For You. And for you has some great stuff on it, but it's just polished. It's not over the top. You know his great vocals. I love the ex- that extended in- instrumental section in the middle. It's just a perfectly crafted pop song, man. It's a very and that's why you know to me it's no surprise that it, it did so well on the charts. It's a true classic, and uh, it's a it's a strong start. All right, uh, day dropping. Right. So um, as as an opener, this is one of the classic openers. Um, this and kind of going along with, with, with the t- title of the album, right? It's Prince because for you was very much uh, governed by Warner Brothers. They had a big oversee on that one. Yes, he produced it and did everything like that, and and he put it all together. But Warner Brothers had a lot of say so on that. On this one, he had full reign, and this is the result of having full reign. Is having a great opener like this song here. This is the track that um, even to this day, people who don't know who they know prince right as you know the artist and they know him who as the artist who recently died and he had a lot of songs and this and that but they hear this song and they were like oh he sings that this is always the track that, that that's going to make people uh go oh, i've heard this song before i didn't know he sang that mm-hmm. and when you get those kind of tracks man then you know you got something special and that's what you got here with this uh it's a great opener it's it like big ken said quintessential pop this is this is what you're looking for as far as a pop song goes in 79 because 
it's a little different, yet it's still got that disco vibe going on. And it's just, you know, it, it's a song that's going to make you dance from beat one. And any good pop song will do that. And um, like I said, man, you know, th- this is the, the, one of the best openers ever. It's, it's in your face to begin with. It's fun. And, uh, and it's Prince having fun. If um, I don't know if we're going track by track on these and all like that, but but it, it, this one here, uh, as an opener and everything, I have this one will score high for me. If I'd score this one, I'm scoring this one a solid nine because it's it's classic. Yeah, you know, uh, it's almost like I hate to use the word. It's like he dumbed it down. Like that first album to me, that first album was overly polished. You know, when I listen to it, it's like so meticulous and I love it. But it's almost like this. Just, man, let me just do some shit that I know is just like uh, it's a no brainer. Like they ain't going to be able to resist this. You know, let me I don't it don't have to be like so I don't have to show off. Let me just give them that shit. You know, to get down. <laughs> it was like I'm going to just give them the good parts. You know, like if you edit this song into how most of us initially heard it without the instrumental it's just a whatever two three minute jam and you know what i mean mm-hmm. it's like oh this is a great you know in fact that he's singing in falsetto too it's totally different but it's just like who is this you know what i mean when you hear it i don't you don't gotta be a prince fan it's just like this is a no-brainer song this is just a classic musical piece of work period you know what i'm saying it just sits in that realm of it's unabashed it's super catchy it's still r&b you can hear it now you hear it is totally prince like that style but it's prince using whatever you know sort of the the sound of that day but still making it prince which he does so perfectly throughout his career so it's just like it's a no-brainer like it's the kiss almost not to say it doesn't fit the album but the fact that when you hear it oh yeah you you buying that and mm-hmm. why would you not? This is good shit. <laughs> you, you buy it. Yeah, it's a standout. Yeah, it's like if they release nothing else, the whole album, which it probably essentially it does, rests on the back of this song. The rest of the album, and I'm not saying it is, it could be shit, but you don't buy it for this, <laughs> which I thought he was perfect at doing. Like, if nothing else, they're going to buy something I'm doing because I'm going to just give them a, something that they can't resist. And then I'm going to, reel them in for the rest of the stuff but uh author man what do, what do you think about the song what do you think of the impact of the song like this has uh the impact of the song i think uh, i agree with everything that was said uh earlier um and i think i think the big impact of the song was that it was prince really showing and proving what he could do it was like the do or die uh song for him because of the um uh, pressure from warner brothers to really deliver a hit and um, he was probably needing to kind of protect uh, his ability to have as much control as he really wanted over his material mm. with this album. Uh, in this song in particular, as the lead single, um, you know, anyone would be forgiven if they thought Prince was the Prince album was actually his debut and completely forgot about, you know, for you. Um, because he I believe that he was very proud of his, this album. He played I Want to Be Your Lover over the course of his career brought out I Feel For You over the course of his career, Sexy Dancer, and I know that we'll get to those songs, you know, over the course of his career, he still revisited, you know, this album. Um, it was the first Prince song that I ever heard. Um, 
as a boy and um, I was, I don't know, nine, eight years old when I first heard it. And um, it was at the time, you know, it's and I was into I was in a rock, but I have an older sister. So I was also into in, into funk and Earth, Wind and Fire and Stevie, you know, so I had this balance and and Prince's music, even at even at that early age for me and for him in his career kind of spoke to me because this was the first time that you really were able to see Prince. You know, he played I Want to Be Your Lover on American Bandstand and that infamous interview that he gave with Dick Clark where he didn't speak. He answered questions with, you know, uh, know, four fingers and nodding and all the shaking his head and all that. You know, Um, there was a video. This was his first video for I Want to Be Your Lover where you just saw him uh, composited with playing all of the instruments on the song. You know, and uh, he had his look down. I know when we talked about four year, I, w- I was saying that, you know, I don't think Warner really knew how to market him. He looked like he was part of the group, the Silvers. But this time, <laughs> nah, none of that. You know, he had the press and curl pop in. You know what I mean? He had the hoop earring in his right ear to start the, off the sexual ambiguity of is he gay? Is he not? You know, he had the light skin. Is his mama white? Is his daddy white? You know, so all of these foundational things that moved him through his career into the later albums, Dirty Mind and even Controversy, started all with Prince. And, and this Prince really started with this song, I Want to Be Your Lover, which was inspired by anyone? Patrice Russian. Bam. <laughs> <laughs> so it was about uh, Patrice, who actually probably played a bigger part in this album than um, had been revealed. Too, um, both as an inspiration because she also inspired. Uh, I believe she inspired. I feel for you also. Um, and what else? Oh, oh, you know, I didn't realize this until I started um, doing a little research. But a month after uh, "I Want to Be Your Lover" was released, because it was released as a single in August before the album came out in October. But one month later, "Rapper's Delight" was released. So at the same time, on Urban Radio. You had Prince, which was being positioned as the new voice, uh, the new star of R&B, right? And then you had rap music pushing its way right. out and, of New York City. And, and you know what's funny? We're going to jump ahead just a second here. So I want to touch on what you just said. But what's really telling, too, building off of that, is you jump four years, well, actually a little more than four, five years later, where you have the, where you take a song off this album, uh, Make sure I say it right. I feel for you. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it catapults. It does two very interesting things. It reignites the career of a singer who is a huge influence on Prince, right? Mm-hmm. Shaka Khan. But it also, and then it also brings um, Stevie hot. Wonder to the, mm. t- in that, which is another influence of Prince's. But then going back to your point, it also is the, one of the opening blow the gates open for hip hop and goes and grabs the guy off of the message. And yeah. He, Mel and, Mel. and he raps on that song. Right. Which is a, yeah. to me, when I look at that, I'm like, that is one of the, that is the superstardom of Prince at that point. But it is also the point where you see hip hip hop <clears throat> is about to come in and tear this shit up. And it's accepted on R and B. It's almost that first sort of, not the first, but, a big melding of the sort of R and B hip hop thing that is so regular now, but where you saw legends 
You know, you had mm-hmm. Stevie Wonder on the track. You had Shaka Khan. The song was written by Prince that came out years earlier. But what you know, and this almost I, I will say this better than the original version. I mean, you can argue that, but it's such a you, you associate that song with Shaka Khan almost. Yeah, yeah. But, right, it's kind of similar to when uh, uh, Run DMC came out with Aerosmith on yes. Walk This Way. Yes. You're right. It's very, it's it's very similar that. to the same type of sort of situation where, again, hip-hop is going to come in and it's going to jack this thing and take it to a whole different sort of thing, for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, big uh, Sexy and Sack, did you want to comment on I Want to Be a Lover? Uh, real quickly, it's like uh, Ken and Arthur said... Um, the first album, Prince had Tommy Vicari overseeing him, and on this one, you know, Tommy's not listed in the notes at all. And maybe to Prince, it was like, look, you know what I can do, I know what I can do. You made me have this guy in my studio for the first album, which com- comes across in spots as overly polished. Let me do my thing, and you guys can shut the fuck up. And at some point, someone told him, well, we need a hit. He said, fine. Went off into a room a couple hours later. Here you go. With this song. And that just let everybody at Warner's know that, okay, we got something here. Let's leave him alone. Let him do what he does. And we just get out of the way. And back in the day when Warner was was really an artist-driven label, that was, you know, something even special for them because this guy had no track record. It's not like he came from someone else's band you know, not, not like he was introduced by someone else. He came out of nowhere. And they're letting him have full control on his second album moving forward. And, in fact, I believe it was Maurice White who who Warners wanted to have him produce the album, the first album. And Prince said, uh-uh, I do my own stuff. And you got, a, what, a 19-year-old kid telling Warners no? And they trusted him, and he was right. And this this one blew up. You know, this is a great song. I remember seeing the video, both versions of the video, actually. You know, the one video where he's by himself in different little uh, aspects of playing all the instruments, and then the full band one, and he had his little light blue Dawson shorts on. (laughs) Now, from a fashion standpoint, ladies, some of y'all back in the day, now come on now, they didn't make those in size quadruple X. So some of y'all need to be trying to rock that. But definitely he made a statement. All right, all right, all right. Moving on to the next song, what we jump into? Why you want to treat me so bad? Uh, to me, this song always had the the thing that had to follow. I want to be a lover, which is a hard thing to do. And for me, I, it was like, what happened to the? You know, it was like this song is ridiculous. And then, of, you know, we didn't even really get into it. But I want to be a lover it goes on to this long extended jam thing. It's just crazy. And you you worn out. Like, like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, this is this is crazy. And then we go into another song. And I always felt like this song, I don't know, when I listen to it now, I I can see this is Prince. It it, it sounds like the stuff that he's done many times more and, and I and it doesn't I don't bat an eye at it. But it's just again, it's a tough thing to follow such a monster song that a lot of times Though I know this song by heart, and I actually love this song, I didn't think it was a proper follow-up. And I want to say this was the second single, too, uh, after I Want to Be a Lover. And to me, I always felt like they should have went with something else. Even Sexy Dancer, there's not even no lyrics in Sexy Dancer, but 
I just didn't think that this song matched the momentum of I Want to Be a Lover because he has so much other fire on this album. But I'll let somebody else, if they want to speak on the song, certainly go ahead. Well, I will real quick. I, I think what you're trying to say, Mike, is that the song is safe. It was safe in 1979 Prince World. And um, he, could, he could write a song like this back then in his sleep. He could have gone, taken a nap, came up, hey, I got a new song. And it sounds just like this. Um, that, that's how I always took this. It's not a bad song. It's not the best song. It's a safe song. It's a song that, that gets the job done until the next track, pretty much. And, you know, I've been, it's not much more to say. It's, it's catchy, but it's nothing stand out. In fact, I think it's probably one of the, if there's a weaker track on the album, I think this one's it. It whoa, just whoa, doesn't whoa, do whoa, much whoa. to me. Yeah, I'm going to have to go ahead and disagree with you two on this. Uh, but go ahead. Uh, I'll wait. Wait. Yeah. It, you know, it's um, Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad. There, I got the title right at least. So there you oh, go. Yes. <laughs> go ahead, Ken. No, I'm good. Well, okay. So here's my thing. I'm, I look at this from a different angle. See, you know, like we talked about earlier, you know, there was, a, there was an impetus behind this album a direct purpose behind this album that I think Prince had, which is that he wanted to showcase himself on this, on this record much more so than for you. And that's why like, I want to be your lovers, you know, the perfect pop song, it comes out very strong. But when I listen to this album, you know, what strikes me about this is that everything in this album is with a purpose. Everything with this album is calculated is deliberate. And each song from song to song, he showcases his range he showcases that he can take almost any style. So when I take it from that point of view, you had your, your pop with I Want to Be Your Lover. Now he's seamlessly able to go to Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad, which is one of my favorites on this album, actually. It has more of a rock inflected guitar background into it. It's a nice, yeah, contra- it's yeah. a nice contrast from the opening track. The opening track shows you he can handle pop and he can be funky, you know, but this show this shows that he can... You know, do the little rock vibe a little bit. And then at the end of the song, he's basically previewing his, you know, showing you a brief glimpse of his uh, guitar prowess in the beginning in 79, which we all know would be taken to stages at an exceptional level in years to come. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and every song after this, they're all, you know, he takes the ballads. He does the sexy dance of funk. He does the, you know, almost, uh, you know, the. Not, I don't want to say country, like still waiting. He does. He has all these separate styles in one album. So when I look at it from this, this is a great follow up to "I Want to Be Your Lover" because it's not like "I Want to Be Your Lover." It's so vastly different from it. And then "Sexy Dancer" that comes right after this is so vastly different than both of those. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm saying. This to me, it's a showcase of range. I mean, this is a precursor to, you know, the Prince that we know you know, throughout the eighties that could just put all kind of stuff in one album. Not too many right. people can pull this off. No, I, I, I understand your viewpoint. I, I, I'll actually say this. Um, you are right. It, it definitely of course does. I'm right. Damn it. I'm just- <laughs> <laughs> it. It does show the range, but I think the thing is, and again, I'm speaking in terms of hindsight at this point, but where you can look at the next album, for, for, for instance, to me, what I think it makes it, I don't know if it's superior is the word, but it's that he doesn't go the range. He stays in something that he's really good at. And he doesn't have to impress me that he can go jump in, do this whole other style. He just, so what I'm saying, like when you started at a dirty mind, to me, it's all the same sort of style, 
Oh, that's but right. That's done right. But you, very, you know different. what I mean? No, 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 I know exactly what you mean. Right. It's different, though, because like we just said, like Arthur mentioned earlier, that, that the purpose of this album was pressure right. from Warner Brothers to make a right. hit. Sure, that's right. what I'm saying. So well, no, I, and I, that's why I said, so, I, that's so why I, said exactly. I agree with you. That's why I said so I agree with mind, you. But I'm saying at Dirty Mind and Beyond, Prince was, let's face it, he was in I don't give a damn phase. I'm doing what I want to do Right. from right. that point forward. So from that point forward, he can go and just, like you say, Dirty Mind, I can do the punk vibe. For sure. Controversy, I can do this. But this album, he had to showcase, you know, yeah. he wanted to showcase a wide range of like, this is what I'm capable sure. of. No, that's what I said. I'm speaking okay. to it in hindsight. Yeah. That's why I said you were yeah. right. <laughs> but I'm just saying in terms of when I listen to it now, that's why I say when I hear I want to be so bad or something like it's I know that he does that style way better later. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And the, no doubt about the it. things that he's very, very, very good at, which you just heard the first song and you could, you know, I, I, are you sexy dancer or something? I almost kind of want to just hear him do what he's very good at as opposed to what I know he's capable of doing, if that makes any sense. So it's not to say that it's not a bad song. It's just that. I'll just say that in 79, though, I mean, this is still, we we know he can do tons better than this, but this is still impressive on how was he at this time? Like like 19, 20? It's in another stratosphere. Yeah. No doubt. But it'd be the same thing, like I say, when I listen to, uh, like, I Feel For You, for instance. It's a brilliant song. But I almost question if he really, at that point, was he uh, as brilliant personally as a player to bring that brilliancy out of that song, right? Uh, or was somebody else who obviously was Stevie Wonder and all these other cats, uh, and I'm, and I'm, I'm glimpsed, I, I think the guy from the system actually played on I Feel For You on the Shaka one, which, it, which would give you, re- again, his level of musicianship was on some other shit at that particular time. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying like, as a songwriter, he was brilliant at that time. He was writing shit that I don't even think personally he was as capable to perform on the level those songs could really be. Yep. You know what I mean? So that's kind of what I'm thinking. Like, like I said, I'm not taking away that the song isn't good. It's just yeah. that at the musicianship that he was at that time, he could go back and record these songs and they would be even bigger. You know, because the songs themselves are excellent. Yeah. Which they stand you know, the test of time. It would probably be a bigger song in 1979 had a white artist put it out. It could have been. I'll take Ken's point where, you know, in 1979, because the recording techniques were, were so very different, the fact that he played all the instruments was still a very big deal. And, and, and Prince, the album Prince was being projected to a much more diverse audience. When, when, when I Want to Be Your Lover broke and broke big, that this song coming behind that where a, this is the first time for a lot of people. This is right. the first time that you actually heard Prince play guitar, that he could actually do that, you know, and then juxtapose that to he's also playing drums, juxtapose that to he's also playing keyboards. He's also doing these things because at that time, the only other person that was doing it was Stevie. Right. So it still was, again, you know, it was a big deal. He played the song as the second song on American Bandstand. Mm-hmm. And just for younger listeners, you know, American Bandstand was an hour-long music show hosted by Dick Clark, the one that did the, all the New Year's Rock and Eve shows. <laughs> and he would bring on an artist, right? And they would do two songs. The song that was essentially the A-side, and then there'd be the B, like the B-side song. You know what I mean? But um, lyrically, too, it's almost, a, it's almost like the part two of I Want to Be Your Lover. It's like, I want to be your lover. Girl says, okay. And then next song, Damn. <laughs> Why you want to treat me so bad? You know, <laughs> so, so like the, the, there's this, the, the two songs are kind of co-joined. But I feel you, Mike. I mean, it's it's sort of like what we know of him 
and how he progressed, you know, this was kind of, I mean, you know, almost like real simple. But I really do think that the album Prince was kind of a simple album. You know what I mean? No, that's what I said. You I, have, I, he just sort of dumbed you know it I mean? down a little bit and, and said, let me just give yeah. them these great songs as opposed to right, right. You know, this whole lavish sort of production. Because the first album, you know, you figure he lived with a lot of that material off of For You for a while. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of the songs on the second album were written for the album. Yeah, and let, let's, let's move forward a little bit because um, there are other people on this album that I think we, we need to mention when we said we move on. Uh, Andre. Yeah, Andre, of course. Uh, Sexy Dancer. Now, here is the song. I remember when I first, first got this album, which was many years after it had been released. And I played this, and everything that I had knew about Prince at that time was all the way up to probably Purple Rain Around the World in the Day era. But when I heard this, I was like, oh, this is that shit. This is that, you know, this is the time... This is that Minneapolis funk sound that was very popular at the time. But I was like, damn, he was on this shit back then. Like, and I love this. I was like, I want your body. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I was like, he's not even really even, there's no lyrics really. Which is just, really. It's just music, but yeah, it's funky as hell. I was like, damn. Now, many years later, uh, because this song was actually Prince's first single that was released outside the United States that wasn't released in the United States, right? So this song was a single, but in the UK and I think Japan, but it was not released in America as a single. Hmm. But they Isn't put that nuts that it was released in in in, that is in Europe and Japan, and it's an instru- it's fundamentally an instrumental. And they put an extended version on the the twelve inch that came out. That extended version. Which I would just say the ver- you know it's the way he recorded it, right? It's so ridiculously dope. Like I almost felt like after hearing that, I was like, I wish they had just gonna put that on the album. If they would have had to omit something or whatever, <laughs> it could it would have been worth it because that to me, I was like, he was doing stuff on there I didn't even know he was doing back then. I was like, this mama gets cold. It's just. Dope as hell. I, so to me, hands down, this to me is just like, it's, it's a no-brainer. Again, it's a no-brainer. It's funky as hell. It's a showcase if, if you listen to the entire version. But the album version is still, the, the album version is that classic, why they got to fade it out? Why, why, <laughs> why right. is it over already? Ah, let it go. It was the first one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I'll start with Big Ken. I, I'm not, excuse me, Big Sexy and Sack. Change it up quick. When this one came out, you know, back then, you know, I was uh, 15, and it was like uh, the party, it, the party, I'd, the parties I'd go to up in Berkeley, a lot of these house parties, they put this on to have that like little pseudo club vibe. You know, I used to go to the underage discos, don't judge me, and they would play this for the little club vibe, and it was instrumental, and it just had that that vibe to it. And the thing is, I can see why it was released. As a single in Europe, especially because it had that that feel to it that you know, he was doing something that no one else was doing, and again, it was a different side because "I Want to Be Your Lover" was not like uh, "Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad," which is not like "Sexy, Dan- Sexy Dancer," and it showed that he's got something cooking here, and let's just uh, 
see where this is going to take us. But this is my favorite song. And when they used it, when they used a sample of it to open up the Purple Medley, I'm like, oh, there it is. There it is. Hmm. Love that song. Yeah, yeah. you know, this is, uh, it reminds me of, you know, I've been watching The Get Down on Netflix. But it, and I love that show because it showcases, like, that early part of hip-hop that was so dope to me. Like, where the music was just, it was the great parts of the songs that you heard, right? It would take the dope part of that song and just play that shit over and over. Uh, now, ramifications of that better or worse is another show. But <laughs> when I hear this, I can hear this has been like, this would have been something niggas was popping and locking to. Because it's, 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 it's the good part of a song over, that the whole song is like that, right? He doesn't step outside of the... And you can, you know I mean? You can see it's almost tailor-made for dancing in, in clubs. And it's like a DJ could just let that spin. You ain't got to fuck with that one, really. Cause it's, just, it's, it's dope. It's just the joke. It's that James Brown part of the song when James Brown maybe just clicked in. It's the whole song. And I, I, I love that he did that. Even back then, it's like, I could see cats on the popping and locking. You know, it reminds me of like some uh, Egypt, Egypt, but you know, Egyptian love of ba- You know, it's that whole style, man. But anyway, uh, 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 author. Yeah, this I used to, um, when this album came out, I was uh, learning how to play drums and I would spend hours just trying to keep because it's a great time keeping song and so that loop that just there's not much more you can add to it i mean it's just uh i was at a Bilal concert and um you know in between the opener and and uh Bilal, you know it was a dj that was just playing stuff just to kind of you know keep it moving and everything and and he blended I think he came out of uh, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough until into Sexy Dancer. And the, the entire room just lit up. The song stands up <laughs> with like no, no problem. And I'm wondering, when you, when you interviewed Andre Simone, did you talk about the song? Is this Andre's bass line? You know, I honestly do not remember uh, if we talked about this song. Because I know that on the on the album, the album itself, there's a credit for, you know, Heaven Sent Helpers and it's Andre Simone and, and Bobby Z. And I've always wondered who's playing what. And I would think that the live, if you can ever find a live version of the song, I'm speaking to your audience because all five of us have it. But if you can find a live version of the song in the 80s during the Dirty Mind tour, especially, um, it sounds so, it sounds Fabulous on record, but it just sounds so much doper live with Prince, with Bobby Z and Andre Simone as the rhythm section. Yeah, um, and I just, I just always wondered. Yeah, it's it's a, it's an amazing, amazing uh, piece of work, man. It's uh, it's just one of them. Like I said, it's a no brainer jam, man. It's just like I, I'm trying to think. There was a movie that this was in, wasn't there? Wasn't there a movie? Ah, I can't think of it. But anyway, uh, Big Ken, last thoughts on this one? Um, yeah, I pretty much agree with you guys on this. Uh, I mean, I hate to sound like a broken record, man, but but again, you know, this this is further extends my concept that you know he's showing his range here. Now he went from seamlessly goes from pop to light rock to now funk, 
all on the same side of the same out first side of this album and it works i mean it's funky no doubt but the thing that struck me too that this this uh because of this extended jam of this song and this is some of the earliest incarnations of like the the chicken scratch guitar that we know is synonymous with him the bass popping you know he shows off his skill with the piano solo yes yeah okay so you know and then he's keeping time on the drum so he's showing you here in this song that yo now i, I can tackle four instruments what y'all got yeah, I got to so, say, though, I think Patrice Russian played that piano solo. Well, whoever played it. <laughs> For is, real, because he's, nice. he's never played like that anywhere else. Okay, mm. well, we, I'll, I'll try to verify that. But either way it goes, man, this is still, this is just, you know, it's, it's just a bad track all the way around, man. It kills yeah. me that it's, it, you know, it anchors this side to me of this of this LP. This you is, know, no, go ahead, go ahead. No, that's it. I was going to say, I could imagine this is one of them songs, like when it came out and people would listen to it back then. I'm, I'm sure like if, you know, if you was a musician cast, they was like, okay, yeah, it's some Prince. I heard the first one. Yeah, cast dope. But I know when they got to this, it's probably like, this motherfucker could be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like this yep. cat could be a problem, yo. Like I thought he was just doing that Stevie type shit. Right, like, right. No, this motherfucker. Like, yeah, okay, let's... Yeah, let's so, go peep him out. Uh, let's go see what to, he's doing. According to Prince Vault now, again, we don't know how accurate this is, but they say all vocals and instruments are Prince, except for Andre Simone does vocal harmony on Why You Treat Me So Bad, which is uncredited. But according to this, he played everything else on all the other songs. Yeah, I'm going to find out. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Sexy Dancer. There you go. Definitely go, go search that out. All yep. my new listeners, go get the... Go find the long version. I'm telling you, man, it's 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 a monster. Ninety bucks on eBay. Hurry, cause I'm bidding. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next up, uh, we go down the line. When we're dancing close and slow. So this is your red light song. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a, this might be a day dropper. <laughs> but with that, we don't go to day dropper. This one now is this uh, first first track of the second side. Of the album? No, it's the last track of side last one. Closing track on side one. Okay. Yep. And and I could see why because it's 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 a nice closer for that thing. It, it gives you a uh, uh, like we, like it gets with a lot of albums. You get a lot of great songs and you have to take your breath a little bit. This is the breathtaking song, and um, I really like this song. And um, it, I if I was to have scored it even a year ago, I probably would have scored it a seven. Um, but you know, in, in hindsight now it, it's gone up to an eight, maybe even a nine, um, just because it, of its somber tone. Um, it's a beautiful song and yeah, it's, it, it's, it's kind of like a day dropping song, right? But at the same time now it takes on a different kind of tone with it. And, uh, unfortunately, and, but I think it's still that, that makes it at the same time, it gives it a, a, another layer of beauty to it. Uh, sometimes somber is is pretty, and this is a perfect example of that. I think that um, when we're dancing close to slow, I think it should have been the closer to this album, just because of the the odd closing of this particular track, the way the way start, the instrumentals on it get towards the end. Um, it would have left you as a closing track. It would have left you listening to the speaker to see if there's anything else coming out after that which I think a good closer should do. Um, so it's great that it's at the end of the, that one side because it, it does give you a, a respite from everything else. 
and gets you really set up for for what's going to hit you next. Um, but it's it's a great song. I I think it's it's um, one of his better slow songs that not too many that too many people sleep on. And I would highly recommend again for those who who are just listening in and just barely getting into his music now, definitely listen to to this track and and really take in what he's got going on here. Boy can do some slow song. And he can do it well. And this is one of the ver- first examples, really good examples of him doing that. Yeah, I agree. It's, 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 I love this. It reminds me of the first album, but the musicianship and everything about it is just on a better level. Like, I can hear the progression of it. It's more mature. It, yeah. And it just it has that sort of, you know, slow thing but then he gets in there still got like a little groove in there like he gets it and just this is just dope to me this is like that's why i love like this out these first two albums to me are are recorded probably better than a lot of his later shit because you can hear every little thing and i just like Mm -hmm. man this shit is so nice and clean and it just i love hearing the little strumming the guitar keyboards and his vocals and the, you know, his harmonies and stuff that he does just dope to me so I, I love the songs master you're right man. it's a headphone song yeah, exactly it's a headphone song exactly um, Big Ken man yeah I agree with you guys it's, I, I love this song as well To uh, like Ernie alluded to it's a great change of pace after the first three songs which in my opinion all three were strong and you know you get a nice pause a nice break here and I love the beautiful acoustic guitar and vocals toward the end, like Ernie said. It's, it's just a great way to close outside one, so I agree. Oh, and by the way, uh, Arthur, again, according to what they say now, Patrice Russian played synth keyboards on Baby on For You, but she didn't have anything to do with this uh, with the Prince album, according mm. to Prince Vault. So mm. put that out there. <laughs> All right, never mind. All right, okay, carry on. <laughs> All right, we, we're gonna keep. I got. We're gonna keep moving because um, we got some other big ones to get into. Wait, 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 wait. Um, real quick on this song, um, Ernie mentioned headphones. Uh, back in 1980 or 81, I was with a lady friend who shall be remain nameless, and we're both wearing headphones to this song, and you know we're doing whatever. And then he says a lyric in this song. I'm like, whoa. I'm not going to repeat the lyric. But the lyric was like, okay, that's, that's where we're going with this song. And then, you know, we, of course, you know, got our things straightened out between us. And it was a good night. But that lyric in that song, I can't believe he actually got away with that on the second album. I really can. <laughs> All right. All right, number five is with you. And I was looking on the Vault as well, Prince Vault. Shout out to them. But it says uh, there was an early version of the song was recorded in 1979, February, at the Music Farm Studios in New York during a day of sessions with the great Pepe Willie, intended for Tony Sylvester, who was the leader of the main ingredient, to use as demos for a group Little Anthony and the Imperials, uh, who wanted to produce the One Day Session. Also, oh, okay, the One Day Session also came up with the songs "When Man Jam," "If You Feel Like Dancing," "I Feel for You," uh, "Thrill You or Kill You," and Andre Simone's early version of "Do Me Baby." Uh, 
although with you was recorded with extra studio time and was not intended for use by Tony Sylvester, which makes me wonder if uh, Pepe and Andre, you know, played a hand in this song and, you know, and somehow the creation, right. Uh, of, of, of this track to me, this song for better or worse I don't know why, but I always associate this with Jill Jones. Well, I know why, because it's on her album, but I actually never really listened to it that much on the Prince album until I heard it on the Jill album. And then I was like, oh, okay, this is that one song. And I like her, I like the music on that version better, but I like Prince's voice better, if that makes any sense. But it, to me, again, it's just one of those songs that it's a great song. I just think at the place Prince was at 1979 and the sounds and instruments that he was using at the time sort of limited that song to me back then where taking that great song and putting different instrumentation on it does wonders for me for that song. And this is one of those songs to me where I feel like this is a great song sort of constrained to the time period that it was done in. Uh, but it's sort of waiting to some he could do it later or and he would just blow it out of the water because it is a, a fabulous song but that's how I always feel about this track um I go to author yeah I agree with you I didn't I kind of ignored this until um till the Jill Jones um cover and I I thought that um it made me it made me realize how good a song it was but I agree with you that Prince's vocal was better um there's no I don't I I don't think there's any backup or that he's, you know, doubling his vocal on this. So you really get the the full um, presence of Prince's voice on, on this version of With You. Whereas Jill Jones's version of With You, um, I didn't think it was a good use of her singing style, you know, because, mm-hmm. I mean, she projects way more. She needs, she just, I mean, she's a good full on singer. Um but uh, I won't go so far to say that it's a throwaway, but um, I would have really liked Bambi, the following song. I would have liked Bambi to actually open up side two because mm. it, it kind of the album really sort of gradually slows down once the slow songs kind of come in, you know, and closing with uh, when we're dancing close and slow and then flipping it over back then vinyl. You know, when you're flipping an album, well, today people are with the resurgence of vinyl, you get the idea of how important sequencing is when right. you go from one side of the record to the other side of the record. It's almost like a clearing of the palette. And now we're presenting, you know, the back half of, of this album. And, um, it got lost to me because I was really just, you know, you'd already put me to sleep with when we're dancing close and slow. <laughs> All right. Uh, big Ken. You know what? It took a, it took me a long time to appreciate this ballad. I mean, because I, I agree with you guys to a degree. I, initially, you know, this was typically like an automatic skip for me because I used to just think it was too slow. I mean, now I've come to appreciate it. it. You're right. It is a beautiful song. It's not up there with his, you know, better ballads, but it's still nice nonetheless. And, and I do tend to prefer the Jill Jones version. Uh, but, you know, I, I think its purpose was to it had to cover the requisite, you know, slow ballad on the album right so and we know we know that he's capable of better than this one but overall it's still a, a decent song but i tend to tend to not listen to it as much when i listen to this album 
Yes, sir. Uh, I got to hear Mr. Day dropping. What's the, what would be the rating on this? On this one? Um, higher than you might think. Now, um, I actually, before I would have thought of the song more like a six. And I probably then would have thought this one as the weaker track of the album. Um, but now... Um, August 27, 2016, this, this rate's a lot higher to me. This song is um, extremely sad um, nowadays. And not to make a somber mood of things and all, but I mean, I, I, it just, it just the way it's sung and the way it's presented and the way it's so sparse the way it is, um, it, it, it makes it, again, it's another one of those very beautiful songs that's made more beautiful due to its somber tone. And in light of uh, in light of his recent passing, um, I, I just, it's a, it's a hard song for me to listen to, to be honest. I, but I think it's very beautifully sung, and I think highly a lot more highly of it now than I did before. I do agree it should not have been the opener. Uh, I agree with Arthur. I think that um, uh, Bambi should have definitely opened this side, but um, but nonetheless, it it still belongs on this album. And uh, reevaluating re- it, I would have to score it an eight because of, of the sentimental, sentimental value of the song to me. All right. I can definitely understand that. And I want to just jettison right to the next one. I'm going to start with you, uh, Big Sexy. But Bambi. Oh, yeah. Bambi, <laughs> the next song. This is now, you know, on the first album, it ended with a rock song, you know, it had rock, rock vibe to it. But this one to me is just like almost like busting through the door, you know, as it comes in, particularly after these last two slow songs. Um, Big Sexy, man. Give me your thoughts on Bambi. And also, you know, we talked about covers. (laughs) Now, this song was also covered uh, by the great T.C. Ellis. Oh. Kid, kid, kid. <laughs> oh, Lord, I tried to block that on my mind. <laughs> on the True Confessions album on the MPG, or no, Paisley Park, excuse me. Uh, so this song was covered as well, but we won't get into that. Thank but, you. but, 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 uh, yeah, tell us about what, what's your thoughts on Bambi? Man? You know, when I first heard uh, Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad, I heard the guitar solos at the end. And I just I noticed that, you know, Prince played guitar and Dez was lead guitar. I'm like, okay, cool. And then we get into Bambi, and this is what I this is my thing. This is what I do. You know, I'm a rock dude, I hear the heavy guitar, I'm like, what is yeah. this here? And the cool thing <laughs> is, for me, in nineteen seventy nine in R and B, other than Ernie Isley, there were no solos in R and B. None. And Ernie, you know, was more of a Hendrix based player than, you know, something a little more more fuller, fuller sound than that. So I hear this, I'm like, okay, this is what's going on now. This is what I'm about. And then as I grew older, the meaning of the lyrics came into play because I didn't know what it was about. You know, 15, <laughs> like, oh, better with a man, okay, well, whatever. And then you know, later on, I'm like, oh, okay, I see what's going yeah. on here. <laughs> and he's done this song, you know, throughout his his entire career you know every song he'll bring it out here and there here and there bring it out i'm like yeah and i love it it's a great rock song this is something that they could have tore up a third eye girl i i just i know this 
Mm. I'll take mm-hmm. it even farther than that, uh, Mark. This is the precursor to the Rock Prince. Like this is the earliest incarnation of what we would hear later on. Gold experience, you know. Okay, I like it there. You know, some of the lotus flower stuff. This is yes. this is the, this is the genesis of that. Yes, because now that you said that, I'm thinking this was the precursor to uh, Undertaker. That yep. whole project. Yes, I agree completely. Yep. And this is also this is also why I, I would say, Mike. This is proof that this particular song is proof why I say that this album was deliberately put together this way. Because now you know he's covered the pop, he's mm-hmm. covered the light rock, he's covered the funk, he's covered the ballads, and now he's letting you know I can whoop your ass and rock too. <laughs> okay, For sure. that's right. What, what that's, can right. You, that's what I'm saying. This is this. That's why, like Dirty Mind, and later he can be more focused. This was a showcase album. He wanted to let people know I'm here. And that what? is why the album is called Prince. Exactly. This yep. is my name. What's my name? <laughs> and it's got and it's got cowbell in this song. Oh, you, can never have <laughs> you can never have too much cowbell, bro. <laughs> no. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. I, I I'll say this. I grew to love this song initially. Like I didn't like it out the gate because it was so like shocking to me. Like I was like, what is you know, I didn't listen to rock like that. Yeah, and I was just, I was like, whoa, like, okay. Now again, I have this. I got this album, like I said, around the time around the world. The day it was either about to come out or it just came out. So I understood that, of course, Prince has that rock vibe. Uh, you know, "Let's Go Crazy" to me is my ultimate song of that. But to me, that at that point, he has sort of mastered it, where I can play that shit and it can be funky as hell. Or pop, whatever, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not a whole other realm at that point. But this is more almost just straight away, like... And I was like, oh, okay, some Twisted Sisters type shit. You know, that was my friend. <laughs> that was my friend. My friend. <laughs> you know, I was like, okay. So it grew... It, it, I grew to love it. But by the time you get... Particularly, somebody said The Undertaker. I think it was Big, uh, Big Ken. Or Big Sexy. Not Big Sexy, yeah. When you get to The Undertaker and they do it, that sounds so dope. I'm just like, and again, I guess the timing of, again, he's a different musician at that point. His timing is obviously way different and it's the way he plays. It just sounds funky as hell to me when he plays. I was like, damn, that shit comes in. And then any other time I've sort of heard him, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's that joint. And I'm like, same way about the lyrics. When I first saw it, I was like, this might be doing a song about the Disney movie. I'm like, what? What is Bambi? But then when I'm listening to it, I'm like, what is this cat talking about? <laughs> right. like, it was on some stuff that you just never, that conversation wasn't loosely spoken in songs, you know, in popular type R&B type records. And I was like, what? Oh, I was like, okay, Prince's. And it, it, it just sort of reaffirmed what I had knew of Prince at the time. Like, yeah, Prince is on some freaky shit. Like, that was kind of the vibe, you know, early on. It's like, yeah, I mean, Purple Rain's X-rated, or he got, you know, the Sucking Dick song or something, you know. <laughs> it just fit into that. I was like, okay, this is his steez, you know. He's on that <laughs> other shit. But I love, you know, so, yeah, it's, this is definitely some Prince Dude. shit. You know? Dude, I had this album, we, we talking about, I had this album in real time. So I'm I'm dealing with this in 1980. And I'm like, Bambi, I'm like, my step, I'm like, the hell? What, you know, what are we talking about here? <laughs> My sister be like, I'll, I'll tell you when you're older. I'll tell you when you're older. I mean, they playing basketball. It's better with man. What's going on? <laughs> and, and it's so funny. Nowadays, this song would be celebrated almost like, 
Well, it definitely ain't no big deal. But yeah, right, it's like, right, yeah. oh, yeah, well, this fits right into the, you know, I was going to say the agenda, but it fits right into the, <laughs> to the conversation. No, but still, though, I mean, I look at this as, as a, you know, a way for him to kind of test the water of what's acceptable that he could actually release, mm. you know, that paves the way for where he's really going. <laughs> right. Can I get away with this? No. Oh, that one worked. Okay, watch. Wait till they get right. this. Wait till they right. get sister. Once Bernie Mine happens, that's all. That's all. This is this is this is what's happening. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Bambi is is, is wild. Um, any other last comments on this before we move forward? Yeah, I I, ha- I remember hearing this song. I, I too got this was album was part of the part of me uh, trying to catch up because mm. um, I, I got as Arthur said, real time. Purple Rain, and that's and that's where I started in from there. So I had to catch up on this. So I got this and heard this back around, like you, Mike, around around the world in the daytime, mm-hmm. and that was kind of perfect for me to have heard this particular track. Then, see, I, I'm coming off of a wave of Kiss back in the '70s, and Kiss then screwed up and and went disco on me in the early '80s and, and killed it. Yeah. So, so yeah. So Mark knows. And so here I hear this, and I'm like, oh, okay, that, that's what I want to hear. That's what I'm used to hearing, you know, as far as, uh, as, as guitar goes. And um, so this, this song right here, man, yeah, I had no idea what he was talking about until years later. I, honestly, I didn't really pay attention to the lyrics on this until after I heard it was a big deal that he performed it on the Ellen Show. Mm-hmm. And then... I heard the lyric and I just laughed out loud so crazy when I when I actually paid attention to what the lyrics were about, you know. And it, it then it sunk in. I go, oh, he's saying this on Ellen. Look at him; he's acting crazy like that. I loved it, man. I thought it was awesome. And um, you know, it, this song is just is this bad? This song is bad, man. It's it's oof. You, you can this this you can hear you can play this today, and and it'll it'll pass the. Car stereo test, it'll pass the headphone test, it passes it all because it is loud and in your face and it don't care. And that, you know, like we said earlier, this this is a future demo album for Prince. This is the Prince Showcase album. Mm. You guys use the word precursor. This is this could have been called precursor instead of being called Prince, the whole album, because that 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 this giving you a taste of everything before. You're gonna hear it. Um, if you ain't ready for this, you ain't ready for the next six, seven, eight, ten years. And in hindsight, we can see that. Man, this song, this track is something else, man. Uh, this is, know, for me is another nine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- it was songs like Bambi um, and uh, you know, Sexy Dancer that got that got the guys to the Prince shows, mm-hmm. where they weren't just taking their girl; they were actually trying to go see Prince because you know he wasn't he wasn't the norm of what was going on R&B in 1979. Cause you know, we're still talking about the, the, the phasing out of disco. And, um, I mentioned earlier about rapper's delight, you know, back rapper's delight was being, you know, the rhymes were over Sheik's good times track. So there was this, this closing of the book of disco and Prince was very, very, very different. I mean, he was, he was doing shows in panties at this point in leg warmers. Yeah. yeah so it's, it was a very new <laughs> agenda. That was happening. New agenda. Yeah. <laughs> and just think of all just think of all the, the songs that would come, you know, basically born of Bambi, you know, that, that came from that. I mean, Let's Go Crazy, you know, The Cross, Endorphin Machine. I like it. I mean, just the, uh, all the Undertaker stuff, Dolphin. I mean, this is tons of stuff, man. This is a very, 
very important track. And in don't his leave catalog. out, yeah, don't leave out witness for the prosecution because it's oh, yeah. the same uh, cadence, the exact same cadence. Yeah, exactly. Same yeah. Yeah, very exactly. Same. Mm. All right, moving on to uh, probably my second favorite song on this whole album, "Still Waiting." Uh, now let me say this. <clears throat> The first time I actually heard this song was not by Prince. And I let me tell you, I had to dig online because I was trying to find it. I'm going to take you all the way back to Video Soul. Uh-oh. You know, BET. Donnie, Donnie Simpson. Donnie Simpson. They used to play, there was a video they played. I didn't know the name. The, the lady's name is, I believe it's Rainy Davis. Uh, and they would play this video. I couldn't actually find the video online, but I found the song. But she covered this song. And I remember them sort of playing this time to time on video solo. And I was like, I kind of like that song. And somehow I think Donnie said, this is a Prince cover or something. I was like, wow, that's interesting. And I never really thought nothing of it. And then when I finally got this album, this song came on. I was like, that is that song. But this version is so ridiculously dope. I'm like, fuck, you hear his voice and the harmonies on and I love his piano on this song. Just that style. Someone maybe would to like eloquently speak on what style this music is. To me, it's like this kind of swing type thing or something. Uh, I love the style. It was just like, and again, as, as I say, Ken was correct. It's definitely different styles going on here. And this one is just right into that. I don't know what to call it, you know, uh, but I, I love this. I love his vocals on this, the little harmonies he's doing. Still waiting. <sighs> Beautiful. And then I also, I don't know which show it was, but during the concerts of this time, and this out there, if you go dig, they do this song live and they extend it. And like he gets the revolution to sing like the backup parts. And then they just go into this whole long drawn out to brilliant like i used to i don't have it anymore but there was some concert they do it and they would do this song it was like almost 10 minutes man i used to jam that in my car so heavy like just was like i was like damn he was on some shit it was just so soulful but uh, i love this song uh one of my favorites of this album one of my favorite print songs period um big ken man what are your thoughts on steel waiting you know what? I I never could could easily classify this song. You're right, man. It doesn't you, you can't call it, you know, pop. I don't call it pop. I don't really call it soul. I don't I don't know really what you call it, but regardless of what it is, it, I agree with you. It's a beautiful track. And, you know, unlike some of the other songs where his guitar playing might be the standout or the bass playing or the piano or whatever, the standout in this song is his vocals, it's his singings, the harmonies that, that he's doing during the choruses and everything. And it's just now this song showcases his vocal ability, his vocal range. That falsetto is in top form. And it's just, you know, it's just a nice track, man. It just fits real nice in this side as well, where it's placed in between Bambi and I Feel For You, man. So it's a, it's a great song. Big Sexy and Sack. 1984. I have a lady friend. Her name was Maria. <laughs> We're at my place, you know, <clears throat> talking and, you know, I'm trying to do my thing. Got a whole narrative. <laughs> <laughs> that's, where the song takes me. that's where the song takes me. 
and, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm open for business. And she's all, oh, you're still waiting. I'm like, well, baby, what's that? Oh, it's by Prince. I'm like, it is? I said, oh, which album? Oh, it's on the second album. I'm like, okay. I look, there it is. And I play them like, oh, this is good. Oh, you never heard it? Oh, baby, of course I've heard it, baby. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I had never heard it before that day. And uh, I'm like, okay, let me, because I was just always, always, always into side one of that album. And then I would stop at, you know, Bambi and just go back to the other side. So I didn't really, I wasn't really aware of it. And so when I heard it that time with her, I'm like, okay, this is good. This is good. Let me, uh, let me go back into the crates, you know, listen to everything now. That's what really got me started on going back, you know, further and listening to the first album again, you know, with a critical ear. So it was someone else who turned me on to it, even though I owned the album for a couple of years. Uh, Big Sexy, can I just ask for the conclusion? Did you finish the deal? You closed the deal? Oh, oh the deal was finished. <laughs> uh, he was not still waiting. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Uh, Mr. Day Dropping. Um, man, uh, still waiting. If I was to classify it anything, um, you know, sometimes Prince's version of songs, right, are always a little bit different than exactly the type of song or genre. I would say this is Prince doo-wop, if anything. Mm, yep. From, okay. okay. This is Prince doo-wop. And, and it's, hey, man, Prince was still doing the Prince version of songs back then. Uh, well, of course, this is early on. So he was doing that. And this was great. It's a good song. It's an excellent song. I mean, there's not much more to add to this. It's it's just a great song. Uh, now made greater with the story that uh, Big Sexy gave us. You know, I, I love that. Prince Doo-Wop. That's, that's what I'm going to call it, man. Yeah. Love that. Love that. Uh, author. Yeah, yeah. So I actually hate this song. <laughs> oh, man. All right, then. The, um, I, I just don't... I'm just not a... I, I'm not a fan of him doing... The style, it, it just, I don't know, it just sounded corny to me. But interestingly enough, though, um, about it being doo-wop, it, it, it's, it's really like a song that Parliament did in uh, 1977 um, from the Funk and versus the Bow Syndrome, which is the album that Flashlight appears on. And there's a song on there um, called Wizard of Finance. And... Hmm. If you're not already familiar with it, you should research it. Compare the two songs. Um, they sound very, very, very similar in, in style. And, it, you know, coincidentally, I, I don't particularly care for that song either. Um, but, uh, yeah, this is, this, is, this is, for me, the true throwaway. Wow. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I'm on the other side of the room, pimping. <laughs> 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 but I respect the viewpoints. All right, yes, yeah, still waiting. Definitely one of my standout joints. All right, next up was a song that I would say was probably the sleeper of the album uh, for many for many years. Um, but then again, maybe it wasn't. Uh, the song "I Feel for You." Um, as I said earlier, there was uh, a number of covers of this song. The Pointer Sisters covered this song, and I like their version. It's cool. Uh, Reby Jackson. Uh, did a cover of this song, I think, on the Centipede album. Uh, and I see why Joe didn't want Janet on some Prince shit. Like, like, I don't want to sound like Prince now. <laughs> I, I can see why. But not to say it wouldn't have been a bad thing, but she sounds like Prince anyway. But uh, so I said, Reby did one. 
And then, of course, you know, the most popular one of all is Shaka Khan, who shut it down with her release of this song in 84. And I want to say she won a Grammy for that. Yep. Um, well, we argued about this in other locations. The song won a Grammy for songwriting. Sure. So, so yeah, it did, the song won a Grammy. The song won a Grammy. Um, uh, and her performance is, is that, that song, uh, you know, her, Melly Mel, Stevie Wonder, uh, it's masterful. Yeah, it was a masterful song, even as it was written. Now I come into this in terms of I heard the Shaka Khan first. You know, Me that too. that was a hit, that was a jam. Yep, same uh, here. And when I got this album, I was like, "Oh, this is a prince." Like, I, it was. It's one of those songs where and I don't know how many of these songs I have that I can think of where I am so associated with something else. And to hear a huge artist like Prince, actually the guy who did it, and then I hear his version, I have to like, I, it's like, oh, okay, this is Prince. I got to give him, give him a chance here because this other version so dominates my psyche. Uh, I would imagine it's the same problem that people have with uh, nothing compares to you, right? Like for a lot of people, it's so associated with Sinead O'Connor, Connor's version that when you go back and tell them, well, actually, you know, it's the family and it's Prince, they're like, well, it's hard for them to turn that other version off, right? And to me, that frustrates me, but I get it because I, I do that with this song. Uh, listening now to the Prince version, I love the Prince version, but I, in my mind, though, it's just, again, it's one of those songs that is sort of trapped in the time period that it came out in, and he's playing to that period, so the only things I like parts of it to me kind of have a corny tinny type of sound, but that was the sound of them, those keyboards back then that they were doing. But the bass is popping is dope. The song itself is dope. I love his voice. It, but then when you hear that boom, almost like a boombastic version that Shaka Khan, the bass is big, you know, it's just so much more energy and you know, and, and you got Stevie. You know, you got Stevie Wonder playing. You know, it's a whole other thing. So this again is just one of those songs that, yeah. If Prince probably had done this song in 1984 with the Prince of 1984 or the Prince of even 1982 or 1999, it would have probably been a beast. But he was a whole different instrumentation at that point as opposed to '79. So it said. One of, for me, it's a it's a great song that if it had been matured by Prince, and he's done this before. There's a many of songs that Prince has written back then and then never released and then rewrit them or re-recorded them and put them on, you know, Sign of Times or whatever, and they was monsters. This would have been one of those ones. Like he was already a dope ass songwriter. Let let's not let's let's be clear. Like that was already out the gate. His shit was on another level. It's almost like he had to catch up to his shit, to, to the majority of it. You know what I'm saying? So this is a dope track, but it has been done better, in my opinion. Big Ken, the floor is yours. Just going to say that you are whack. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> uh, no, hey, on the, on the real, yeah, I think most people, you know, especially most people our age came up when we came up. Shaka Khan's version would probably be the de facto standard version for most of us. Because you're right, that is very boombastic to use your word. 
you know, big heavy drums, a lot of reverb, you know, the whole, you know, the guy, the Shaka Khan, little rap part in the beginning, that's all very distinctive and it, you know, sets that version apart. But even with that being said, I, I love this version. I just remember when I, you know, just like you guys, I came at this album later. I came at this album probably around 85, 86, somewhere in that time frame. And I remember being floored hearing this version and, and realizing that Prince actually created this song in the first place. So I, I love this version. I mean, to me, it's still classic. I mean, I love the arrangement of the song. You know, the, 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 the bass guitar, like you said, the synthesizer that he's doing. Uh, the hand claps on the two and four, you know, that he's got going on. And I love the ending of the song. You know, it's it's still a strong version to me. Although, yeah, most people, I agree with most people, the Shaka Khan version is, you know, what everybody's going to remember. But I, I love this just the same to me. I still think it's pretty much a flawless song. Yeah, and you know, I think it, I wish it never faded out. I wish it kept going because it sounded mm-hmm. like he was about to get it in. Like, yep. <laughs> and I'm like, damn, I want to know what they was going to do because... I could hear him ramping up like, uh, well, shut it down again. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, day drop. Yeah. You know, it's it, basically the same thing you guys are saying. Um, I, I too first heard this 85, 86 and then, um, Shaka Khan version with this, that was the version of this song. I didn't. And like Ken said, I was also floored by realizing that he had written this song. So I thought, wow, what else did he write? It kind of got me, this this song and its relation to a, a a later release that was bigger than the original um, really got me into uh, seeking out and being conscious of songs that were, that were written by him for other artists, and uh, really got me into realizing you know who who was the creator behind songs like Sugar Walls and Manic Monday and stuff like that, and realizing hey I like those songs I wonder why mm-hmm. and just realizing that oh th- this is why because there's an underlying um, uh, a common thread to it all, um, and th- again, this song is—it's good. It's not a bad song, but it will always be in the shadow, in my opinion, of the Shaka Khan version. It's just—it's it, kind of hard to compare. You're comparing a song to itself in a better version. I mean, the, it's a compliment, but uh, the Shaka Khan one will always be there. That would be the number one for me. It's, but not a bad song. Mr. Author. Yeah. Um, yeah. Same, same, same all the way around. Um, an interesting thing to me with this is because of the, uh, the arrangement uh, in more of a, more of a, a, a hip hop context um, is that, you know, it, it, it accentuates the relationship that Prince has had with, uh, with, with hip hop um, throughout his career. And um, when this was released at the height of Purple Rain, you know, Prince had already been, um, uh, really a force just in drum programming and you know he'd been making essentially beats like when Dev's Cry was just a straight up you know beat song and for this song for I, for Shaka's version of I Feel For You which was produced by R.F. Martin who historically uh, produced um, a lot of the um, infectious Bee Gees material like Nights on Broadway and he R.F. Martin is responsible for Aretha Franklin's uh, early catalog. Um, so he's got some real instincts um, in in uh, in black music, and I think that helped. That kind of experience helped to be able to bring some musicians to the table, um, and you know, and produce this song and really make it make it into something. Um, 
and it's one of those songs uh, by Prince along with um, uh, Nothing Compares to You and also When You Were Mine, you know, that has legs and does well for other artists, you know, and then in return, you know, does well for, you know, for him in terms of his, his prowess as a songwriter. So, but, um, you know, on Prince, it's, um, you know, it's, it's okay. It's, you know, it, it's kind of like um, uh, I Will Always Love You. Like, even though it's a nice Dolly Parton song, it's a great Whitney Houston song. Mm-hmm. I could see that. Yeah. It, and, you know, it's, uh, I like what uh, they dropping was saying about it. It sort of made you more cognizant of the other songs that started kind of popping off at that time. And you were like, oh, that's that. Prince did that one. Okay. And, you, and that was at, at that time, you could hear it. Like, you could hear certain songs, you'd be like, Oh, wait a minute. There got to be some prints on that because yeah. it's so distinctive. It's these distinctive little parts that just can't, nobody is doing that. Uh, and that, and it made the fun of sort of peeping out certain tracks. And you're like, oh, okay, yeah, that's my dude. Yep. <laughs> yeah, he touched that. Yeah. Oh, okay. And then it made you kind of like, when you heard the flip of it, when you heard his version, you heard the version of it, at least like, what, what happened? <laughs> like, why ain't it as dope as what he did? So it's very interesting. All right, we got the last track on here. It's gonna be lonely. My joint. And I, I'm right there with you because I, I. Well, I don't know if you're joking. I love this song, but I'm gonna let you go ahead. Yeah. You, you got the honor, sir. Man, this is the sleeper of the album for me. It's um, it's I don't know if it's my second or third favorite song behind "Sexy Dancer" and "I Want to Be Your Lover," but um, I really love his vocal arrangements. Um, I like how he builds the tension throughout the song. You know, he starts with that same kind of, you know, single vocal, you know, right up, full presence right up on your ear, you know. And then as the chorus and the song expands, you know, the instrumentation gets wider. His, he starts layering his vocals and the refrain, which is just uh, I, and I have I've never counted, but I mean, at least four, five, six times repeating the same chorus, you know, building and building and building and building. I mean, it's a great closer, and it's, it's, it's really one of my favorite Prince songs, but it's a full-on sleeper for this album. Yeah, Cosine 1000. This, 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 so I'm going to try to attempt to illustrate what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's like, oh, little baby, can't you see? Then they go, it's going to be. Yeah. I'm dead every time. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's just like you hear it. I'm like, damn! Like, yeah, man. This the, the dude, Mike and Art summer tour. Hey. <laughs> Coming to a mall near you. Yeah. One show. Yeah, one show. <laughs> Bring the debt tape, please. <laughs> but yeah, man, like that dude, man. He, he, that's to me where he just showed what was the, what's to me. I don't see come present again till damn near. Um, Shit for me, it'd be like on some uh, maybe a door, maybe on some love sexy stuff, and go, it's just that certain type of grandness. Uh, that's what I call it. It's it a grand feel to it, but it was so soulful, man. Like again, it's a slow track, but this to me, let me say, and I may be sounding crazy, and I maybe because I've heard his voice recently. We we're playing it here at the house, but for some reason. I could seem like my man Luther or something could have sung this. It wouldn't have been on that falsetto, but a very strong vocalist 
also could have done this song. Like if you just say, yo, man, I, I, I record it, but I want you to have this. You do this. I could have seen this. It's just a, it's a dope print song. It's just a sleeper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, it's, it's remarkable. Like I said, that, like you just said, all that build up and. That's just, ah. He got that one. He got that synth that just stays yeah, throughout the verses. It just hangs there in the air, and he's got that them Ernie Isley drums at the end of the, every every measure. That's my joint. I be walking down the street like today, singing that song in my head, hand gesturing and all that. <laughs> yeah, it's and it's one of them. I'll admit, it's one of the ones that can can make me shed a tear, man. When I hear it, I'm like, man. And you know what though? It was lonely too because I was. The closing of this album was the end of that little brief R&B, Afro, Press and Curl era because it was mm-hmm. on and popping, starting with Dirty Mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then he goes on a whole different So, yeah, Echoes is brilliant track. Uh, Big Ken. I'm going to have to double co-sign with y'all. I, I don't really have much to add except to say that I, I, too, absolutely love this song. I think it's the perfect way to close this album. Uh, to me, this song, man, you know, basically is a composite uh, of all of the, you know, of what we heard previous, you know, I mean, there's elements that's in each and all these songs, man, that come together in this song to make this this fabulous track, and this track has one of the f- best fade outs in his entire catalog, man. Like, you know, the way it fades out, man, is it, it makes you it's dope, but at the same time, you piss because you want more. You know, you, I, I would love to hear this song even, you know, a little bit more extended. It's it's just a great it's it's a Pretty much a perfect track to me. I love it. Big sexy. You know, <clears throat> you know, I gotta admit, I didn't really have many thoughts on this song until about oh five minutes ago when I heard the <laughs> Arthur and Michael duet on it. So once we hmm. conclude this, I gotta pull this one out and give it the, um, the right, new listen. The narrative behind this one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I got nothing for this one. I'm I just really, again, I, it never really resonated with me one way or the other. But again, now, now, uh, years, many years later, I want to give it an, another shot because if it's got those elements of like the Ernie Isley type drumming, or if it's something that Luther or someone else could have done, I want to hear this. So I definitely want to take another listen to it. All right, day dropping, man. This is on you. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I would have been okay with when we're dancing close and slow as closing, but I can see why this is a better closer. For the album, it really demonstrates a good. Uh, uh, it's a good example of his vocal layering, that layering that he was known for, and later known for even more so. This is it's beautifully put put together, and it does build. And another reason why it's, I think it's the better closer is because a good closer should build, and that's exactly what it does. And it does it builds vocally, and that's. Um, Something that I think this album needed as well. This precursor album, as I think of it now, uh, it needs to show you, hey, yes, I can play the guitar, I can do funk, I can do R and B, I can do all that. Oh, and I can also sing. I can do this this vocal style that that you may not be used to, but you're going to get used to. And so that that's a good example in this track here. Beautifully placed, um, beautifully sung. And, um, you know, I, I, I change your heart with me. I believe it's it's the better closer between those two. I think when we're dancing close to slow is a great closer for this first side. This is a great closer for the second and the better closer 
for the album. Um, just, just some good stuff. You know, overall, this whole album is an excellent um, fortune teller of an album at the time. Because then you got to know what – it gave you an idea. Little did we know that it gave us an idea of what was going to be coming uh, in the future. And um, little did we know how much things would change from this album to the next as well. But we already had little bits of pieces. We already had Bambi uh, to help usher us into uh, Dirty Mind. And um, man, this album, it's necessary. It's necessary listening. And I didn't used to think that way about this album, but I do now. It's necessary listening to be able to to see where he was going and uh, that he did have a plan. He did know what he wanted to do. And uh, I, th- I think in, as a whole, this album is vital. It's vital. It's it, vital to um, the the one, two, three knockout that we got after this. I see this. And, and for you, for you is like a jab. This is the right cross. And uh, later on, you have the jab right cross hook uh, with uh, Dirty Mind Controversy 1999. Then that just knocks you down. And when you get back up, he gives you the knockout punch, Purple Rain. Boom. And, you know, this is a perfect setup for that kind of stuff. Um, right. You know, I, I love it. Good stuff. Well, as, as we round this thing out here, you know, uh, and you, you kind of got into a little bit there, uh, day dropping. You know, I really wanted to just look at brief conversation of where his career is at this point. So he's had two albums. Uh, you could say they're essentially R&B based records. The second one starts to see some growth here. You you know you got different you got the rock track and different things, but essentially he's, you know sort of billed as this R and B guy. And then I don't think anyone could have had any inclination. I mean, you see the clues, but again, you're not necessarily seeing. You know, the expectation is not what you got, right? You know, after this, he goes on a whole different. No one's seen that coming, right? Which I think he may have went in a whole different direction that you normally probably never saw uh such a drastic shift in 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 imagery and the presentation and and the music somewhat uh you know i'm looking at the cover art for for these first two albums right like the first one is just a close-up of his face but it's sort of hidden you know blurred out a little bit the second one is a full-on shot of his face with the perm now but that back cover is a motherfucker like <laughs> the back cover, you know, butt naked on a horse. Shout out to the, to the Pegasus. Which, which I wonder, <laughs> looking at it now, I wonder if he'd have made that the front cover. <laughs> it'd been way more telling than like, well, this motherfucker is awesome other stuff. Like, what does we have here? But I want to ask you a question. I mean, what do you, what would you have thought of his career at this time? You know, he's had one hit song, set two albums. Uh, you saw him on TV now, American Bandstand. I want to go to author and just in terms of, again, this is an R&B guy. He's an R&B guy at this point. What would you say about the first two? You got the first two albums. What would you say about Prince at this time? Um, just to recap just a little bit of what, what, of what I'd said in the For You uh, show was that I think I think they did not know exactly how to position him and that the only thing that they had was 
his ability to to uh, play all the instruments um, and also produce. And I think that that was a way for them to capitalize on, you know, Stevie Wonder being being the example and the comparison because internally and even in public material, he was being kind of cast as the next Stevie Wonder. And I think Prince, the Prince album built on that. And I think that with his desire to prove, because we know that Prince was very competitive and he needed to prove himself. And this has been throughout all of his life. You know, he was short. He wanted to be a basketball player. You know what I mean? So he had to fight to get on the team and he had to be better than everybody because of his height and da 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 right? And I think that's carried into his music because, you know, at this time in 1979, his biggest um, obstacles, if you will, were Rick James and arguably Michael Jackson, whose Off the Wall was released in this year around this time also, you know? And Michael was on a resurgence. This was the new solo Michael and him coming into his own and not, and not uh, 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 um, well, he was still being directly associated with his brothers, of course, but this was clearly a Michael Jackson album as opposed to, you know, a Michael Jackson album that he did in conjunction with, you know, the albums that he would do with his brothers. So we've got three people you know, competing for the same number one spot. Michael Jackson, who's kind of the de facto leader because he's most famous. Uh, Rick James, who's coming behind uh, the demise of Parliament Funkadelic, you know. And now you've got this upstart Prince. And with this edgy appearance that Prince had, and when I say edgy, you know, again, let's drill it back to, you know, 30 some odd years, you know, an earring, a hoop earring, uh, you know, in his right ear that, you know, was kind of uh, associated with um, um, identifying himself with the gay community. We have the press and curl. We have the high voice. We have um, doing shows in, you know, really short shorts, athletic shorts, or, or just straight up panties. Um, you know, so <laughs> we got this, well, for real, right? And leg warmers, yeah. because this yeah. dirty mind, this dirty mind look was being developed while he was doing tours for the song. And now he's starting to get exposure. You know, the American Bandstand, the Midnight Special, so he was being presented in front of white audiences also. So I think, I think he knew where he wanted to go and that he just needed this album to give himself enough room from, from the Warner Brothers standpoint, get enough room to be able to justify him being able to do more of what he really wants to do. And another key component into this is the transition in management where he left Owen Hunsey, who brought him up, you know, pre-4U to 4U to the Prince album, and going to um, Cavallo and Ruffalo, who were Earth, Wind & Fire's management, among other groups, but most notably Earth, Wind & Fire's management. And they brought on a third partner, Stephen Fargnoli. And that, that marriage between Steve Fargnoli and Prince, you know, happens around this time between the Prince album in 1979 in the Dirty Mind album of 1980. So we're looking at a transition period that from the outside looking in, you know, we, we are learning to grow accustomed to Prince as the new face and the new voice vying for the number one slot in R&B. But he's got, he, he's on something else. Yeah, it's, you know, I kind of look at it too. It's like, um, I wonder if this album had been a 
super success, would he have changed his style? You know what I mean? I wonder, like, if if for some reason, like, the second single blew up, third single blew, you know, if they all blew, would he have said, fuck this, I'm not doing dirty, <laughs> I'm not going to go that route because this shit is popping now. Like, you know, like you said, when he, he initially, uh, when this album is when he first starts to tour, really, right? Right, right. He's, he's opening, opening for the Rick James Rick Fire James. It Up tour. Yeah, uh-huh. and Rick James uh-huh. at the time, visually, to me, is doing what Prince essentially wants to do in terms of this look and he's got the band and you know he's the yeah. fucking man you know he's not doing right. traditional r&b he's right you know, that punk funk type thing and i wonder like if his shit if i want sometimes i wonder if, if he was just like well okay i had these two albums and i always always wonder did those albums really speak to him in terms of who he really was you know in terms of like well they're gonna present me as this kind of mm-hmm. uh stevie wonder type dude but that's mm-hmm. just something that I'm definitely into, but I'm really this other type of dude. Or did he grow into be this other guy? Because again, how I ain't can compete with Michael Jackson. I'm, well, I think I'm, I think I think he needed. I think Prince honestly needed to to um, separate himself from both Rick James, who still had that kind of you know Parliament punk funk. Right. You know what I'm saying? Quasi Kiss wearing platform boots on stage persona. But Prince really was like the first alternative black music artist. He was like the first <clears throat> D'Angelo. You know what I'm yeah. saying? And for him to separate himself from both 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 Rick and Michael, and Michael, full on, Michael was on some disco. Well, yeah, I mean, right? He was Michael was was on dance music and the clubs and everything, and Prince was on Prince was on something else. But 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 speaking to your you know speaking to your question, if if Prince if the Prince album got bigger. You know, a number one follow up with with why you want to treat me so bad, you know, uh, uh, a number one follow up. Uh, God, for whatever reason, was still waiting because I was a single also. Right. If those things happened, I, I still think Prince would have wanted to go left. You know, and I and I believe I believe that Fargnoli helped him to do that, because if if the legends are correct, it was Fargnoli who had urged Prince to take dirty mind these demos because prince himself has said these every song on on dirty mind was a demo to take it to warner brothers and have that be his follow-up you know because he right. was beginning to be presented to white audiences without you're right, your you're right you're right see I, and it makes me you know looking back now you, you look back and you listen to the demos of this first album and i can hear musically sonically how dirty mind was Yo, I'm just recording these shits on my own versus mm-hmm. going to these big studios where they did these first two albums and they're so right. polished, right? So I can understand that. I'm just curious, though, like his look is such a big part of his career, particularly early on. I wonder if he, if for some reason that shit started to blow up and he's seeing what Rick is doing and mm-hmm. he's like, okay, can I out Rick Rick? <laughs> you know, am I, can I go even more crazier with this shit? Uh, or, you know, and, and if he was like, well, shit, man, you're blowing up as this, the next Stevie type dude is actually working. I wonder would he have tried to tone it down because his stage presence well, almost stage didn't presence, match with what you heard. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like, exactly. Be- right, right, right. So that's you why know, I kind of wonder like if, or if he was just already like, you know what? Fuck it. Uh, these people are going to come to this concert thinking they're going to see, you know, little Stevie. 
but yeah. they're they going to get Mick Jagger. <laughs> right. Like, they got what they got because, yeah, the, 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 the stage presence of Prince was very different from the package presentation right. of Prince, regardless of the unicorn buck naked picture on the back cover. You know, the inner sleeve photo and the majority of sales that were, that were, being, that were happening in 1979, 1980 were, were, were albums, were LP sales. The inner sleeve photo was, was a nice photograph of him, mm-hmm. professionally shot, obviously, with a leather jacket that's kind of, you know, kind of exposing, you know, his chest. So, you know, it was reasonably uh, safe. But when you went to a Prince concert, you know, you got a very shit, different yeah. experience because another thing, too, he was beginning to establish personalities within the members of his band. Right. You know, there was Andre, and Andre walked up out there with plastic pants on and some, and some black bikini briefs under it. Andre was a freak, just like Prince, you know. Um, he had Dr. Fink, who was dressed as, at that time, you know, sort of dressed as some sort of, you know, he, I don't think he was a doctor by that time in terms of the medical gear. But I'm he saying, was a convict. Like a convict. Yeah, 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 that's what it was, right. They had him in a jail outfit, you early, know. Early and, death row. Obviously, he was in that community. <laughs> yes, thank you, thank you. You know, he had Gail Chapman. <clears throat> she had her in some lingerie, you know, you know simulating head on the stage because he was playing head at these shows. Right. He was playing this music. So, so I'm saying, Mike, you know, the bigger that Prince album got, I, I just think that would have just given him that much more room to do more of what he really wanted to do. Yeah, it would have been interesting because that's, that's where I would wonder, like, at this point, then, then Warner Brothers would be like, yo, right. we got a cash cow here. You trying to come in on some way out shit? The people want to buy, you know what I mean? So it had been, I can understand why they probably said, yeah, let them put out Dirty Mind. We ain't got shit to lose at this point. It's reasonable, yeah. It's reasonable to say that Warner would have put more pressure on Prince to to clearly stay in the black music lane. Mm. I do, I do. I I do fully, fully agree with you. Um, But I think that, I I don't know, man. I think think knowing Prince, he probably would have done one more album more of the same, you know, but... Well, it's obvious he would have made It's obvious he would have made a choice because obviously when he hits Purple Rain and he's at the top of the game, he makes a choice to go left, right? You're as, right, as right. opposed to give him what they probably wanted. So yeah, he probably would have. St- yeah, it just be interesting. I guess back then they still would have may have given the artists some autonomy to go ahead and do whatever the fuck they wanted to do, regardless. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. it, it it is an interesting two albums before it really just goes. Again, I can't think of any other, maybe you guys can jump in. There's any other artist, and particularly that's in black R&B, which is almost taboo to jump ship a little bit. But at the same point, you know, I have to remember, when he did Dirty Mind, when I went to Houston, that's when the kids was on his, that's when he was like a rap star almost in terms of his popularity among younger people when they were playing that in the parties. So I don't know if it's like, I think the music got even better and just got more raw, you know, funkier as opposed to if he would have did the album and it was all rock. Yeah. Now, you know what? Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Let's take the real question is let's take Dirty Mind out of it because on the face of it, Dirty Mind alienated his his R&B audience. Right. Let's just say it. It's you know, it's it's just a different album. Right. What controversy happened? What what takes Prince from 1979 Prince to 1981 controversy. If, even if you take Dirty Mind out of it, I still think that con- the controversy album was, was Prince's trajectory. That's where he was going to be going anyway. Controversy would have still happened if Dirty Mind didn't happen, in my view. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's yeah. I think all of the the, the road plays into it. His popularity over time. I mean, because again, controversy sort of like it, it's called controversy, and it's playing off of your expectations or what you know of him at that time, right? Like what he's talking about, right? So, and it was hard to say. It's like he at this point knows his place to a degree, right? And he's cognizant of his success at controversy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, put put Dirty Mind back into it. You know, side two is clearly R&B. It's funk. Side two is funk of Dirty Mind. Mm-hmm. And that's what keeps his black audience. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's interesting because like I said, I don't know of any other R&B guy and then he goes funk, parliament. I mean, I don't want to bring D'Angelo into the picture because it doesn't really, it's not the same level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and it's not the same time. There's so much, there's so much information that has passed in between. Yeah, this, I mean, Prince doesn't really have much of a peer, you know, in, in his career. Yeah, because he might think of like, it would have been like if, if, if Lenny Kravitz came out as an R&B guy at first. And then, mm. he, was like, then he was like, mm-hmm. well, I I'm going, <laughs> I'm going on some rock stuff. But he did, he came out of the gate rock. There was no question. You know, he had to fight to get back in the R&B. You know, let me put out some R&B shit. They, they don't think I, you know what I mean? Like, like I'm Romeo Blue, goddammit. Yeah. <laughs> Romeo Blue. <laughs> yep. Uh, but anyway, uh, Big Ken, man, your final thoughts on this album. Yeah, man. Uh, mm. Like I told you, I, I think this is a, a very good album. Um, to me, it's... It's to me, it's obvious, and you know, listening to it, it, that it was a calculated, you know, deliberate project in the sense that you know you could tell that he wanted to make an, an impact and, and showcase a lot of what he was capable of. So you know, the range of his talents. You know, we see his songwriting, we see his vocal range, we see his musicianship, we you know get a glimpse of his mastery of instruments and whatnot, and he basically. Uh, to my ears, you know, crafted, a, you know, a, a very strong, you know, almost perfect pop album, you know, that, you know, it's probably not what most cats, you know, that young, you know, a lot of people that, you know, doing their sophomore project, you know, would would be that focused. So uh, he's basically serving notice to folks that, you know, I'm coming, you know, so y'all better get ready because, you know, I'm I'm coming and just like you guys just alluded to. All the next steps were, you know, were hardcore. And so uh, he succeeded in that in that uh, point to me. So overall, it's a great album. And I think it's a pivotal one in this catalog. Uh, and it leaves you with this this sense that this guy is the real deal and that the best is yet to come, which we all know was the case. So I think it served its purpose. Big Sexy and Sack. Got a co-sign with, uh, with Big Ken on this. <clears throat> this was like an introduction of sorts to everything he can do because there's everything on this album that he has done and showed that he can do and then he comes off of this and goes hold on oh sorry about that he goes full on into dirty mind which was full on rude boy skinny tie new wave vibe and black artists weren't doing that and that album really earned him the critical dap he needed to really expand his universe. So this was like the launching pad here. This is, we're, we're at the, uh, you know, we're in the ground floor at, at this one. And then from there, it just went out 
and further and further. And the best thing about it is Warner Brothers stayed out of the way. Yeah, you you got to give Warner Brothers a lot of uh, a lot of a lot credit. of credit for how they allowed or, or you know let Prince just kind of do his thing. It, you know, of course they have to step in when they do, but for the most part, going from the first album shit all the way to I would say from the first album all the way to Parade, they're letting this cat just do whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it makes sense or not, it's just like just let them let him run. Yeah, and, and you got to give them credit for that. Uh, you, you, you'll never see that again. No, yeah. I mean, that's a testament to true, <laughs> true artist development. Yeah. I mean, Black, Warner Black Music Division really, really worked with Prince. Yeah, you know, you, you're not going to see that again. The only thing you'll probably see is, you know, and they don't really care about it, but you'll see like a, an Apple or one of these places just cut you a check because of your notoriety and let you put out what you want, but they're not going to just give you free fucking reign to be like developing your shit. Uh, this dude. Yeah, no, you've got to put, yeah, you got to put the work in on your own to develop yeah. yourself. I mean, Chance is a proven example of that. Frank yeah. Ocean too, but I mean, Chance put the work in right. to get that Apple exclusive deal. And you would never have anything like that exist for an artist who was on a label and knew, you know, you, you've, you got like one shot, you know, <laughs> and if you don't, if, if you don't make it that that's it. Yeah. Parting ways, keep pushing. But yes, yeah, so, I mean, and this was a part, you know, just to dial it back a little bit. We've done for you. We just did Prince and we're just going to keep going on this journey, but it's an interesting one. And I implore, you know, our new Prince fans out there. If you can, I, I, I get it. Like you're going to, you're going to jump in on some of these greatest hits packages. It's, that's how I was with some f- sly stuff. But at a certain point, if you can just go in order, it's it's very interesting to hear it in order because you're going to hear the progression uh, mm-hmm. and what he's doing. And you're going to be like, oh, I kind of he was kind of doing that a little bit. And then it just gets better and better. And if you can keep in your mind that this shit came out like maybe you know, once a year. And it was dropping. Just imagine, like how you could have been listening to this, and how man, it went from Prince to Dirty Mind. Like, whoa! Yeah, and, then, and to realize that the progression is deliberate; it wasn't yeah, accidental. Yeah. Then that's when it, that's the true beauty. I think you'll have when you sit back and listen to this stuff, and you'll have a, you'll actually probably have a, even a better rounded viewpoint of it because it's all available to you if you slow down and take the time and listen to it in order you're going to be amazed you don't you now the one part is you're not going to have to wait a year to, <laughs> to, to hear the next shit and you can immediately blo- you can binge listen right like it's netflix <laughs> or something but trust me you are in for a ride uh we're going to wrap things up here before we do i have to give props to the gentlemen here that have you know, joined me and blessed me with their presence, we'll start with our guest here. Who's our, our he, he, he's our he's our brother. You know he, he he's always going to be here, whether he's either music snobs or not. He is a deep Prince fan, so we always value his uh, insight. Mr. Arthur, thank you for joining us today, sir. Thank you, thank you. It's always a pleasure, man. I really appreciate it. And, and shout out to your brethren on the show there, of course, my guy Jerhan. Uh, when we can get our schedules to align, we will definitely have him back on as well. Also, Mr. Big Ken, sir. Yep. yep. 
before I say anything else, let the people know, because you are a musician yourself. Uh, I see you've been dropping some tracks online. These are new tracks or not, but what's going on with that? Yeah, these are tracks that I've been messing around with for the better part of the last year, year and a half, man. As you well know, man, a lot of times time is escaping you when you have a family and job and wife and kids, all that stuff, man. So it's harder to find time to devote to it, but I finally was able to finish this session and just went ahead and dropped it. So you can check them out at theflavorfoundation.com. All right. Thank you, sir. And Mr. Day Dropping, sir, thank you for joining us. And where can people no catch up with you as well? Yeah, I'm a simple guy. You're going to find me on Facebook, um, Ernie Wiles, and um, you know, hit me up. All right, all right. <laughs> also, <laughs> Mr. Big Sexy in Sack. Sir, where can they find you? Ma'am. <clears throat> In court a lot lately, and in uh, a couple of corporate <laughs> situations a lot lately, which is all I can say about that publicly for now. Uh, still online at uh, Facebook under Mark Wiggins and Twitter, Big Sexy and Sack, but hopefully on Monday there'll be an announcement. Hopefully. Oh. Right. And lastly, but not least, uh, you can find us at theprincepodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Prince Podcast. Of course on itunes you can look us up on there and again man just want you guys to just keep listening keep uh respecting uh this prince music appreciate it uh we were celebrating it before we're gonna celebrate it after it ain't never stopped and uh hey I'm, hopefully i'll see you in uh minnesota at some point with that work it like a job my name is michael dean's prince podcast we out peace ignored the first sign, the business card. She ignored the second sign, the interview. And when the third sign came, she didn't care because she was hooked and there was no chance of turning back. They wouldn't allow it. In book one of Confessions of a Temp Call Girl, Blue Roses James, aka Blue, was simply looking for something more than what she currently has, which was nothing Determined to earn a better wage and to fulfill her foolish adolescent needs, Blue blindly takes on an entire company, not knowing that she has bitten off more than she can chew, but she won't go down in the blaze of glory alone. So she drags her two most trusted comrades with her, Kanitha, a.k.a. Boom Chic, and Katie, a.k.a. Miss America, along for the dreaded ride. Want to know what happens next? Go to Amazon.com to purchase your copy of the new thriller, Confessions of a Temp Call Girl, written by Tori McGlory. If you're looking for a great read you can grow with, make Confessions of a Temp Call Girl a part of your book collection today. Available now and on sale at Amazon.com.